Hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Hey, have you ever been subject to the soul plague called Jealousy? Great song by Queen, by the way. But um, we had a caller who really was suffering under jealousy when his girlfriend would step out, go to nightclubs and hang around guy friends and all that. Kind of drove him a little crazy. And uh, did we stay shallow? Hell no. We went deep, baby. So deep that philosophy got jealous of our conversation. And I think you'll find it really, really important to listen to, to find out sometimes where the source of our emotions come from. Now, the second caller, a fine gentleman named Bob, who has uh, called in before on, you know, palindrome call-in night, and he had an immigration plan that he wanted to share with the world, and also, by the by, as a black man, to complain about being called a racist on a repeated basis. Don't worry, white people, it's not just you who's suffering from this. It's anyone who opposes the left, uh, the leftist plan. So we had a great conversation about uh, racism and immigration and all kinds of wonderful stuff. Now, the third caller is calling from the army, and he wants to know what is the morality of breaking commitments? And uh, it's a great question. Are you obligated? Is it a moral question with regards to your commitments and your promises and your contracts? Great set of questions. And the fourth caller wanted to know when I last prayed. And uh, I think the answer will surprise you. It might be just a little bit later than you think. And we had a great conversation about the value of prayer, even for the non-religious, perhaps even especially for the non-religious, if they have no other form of examining their own mind. Great set of callers. I love the variety. I love the variety. I love you all. Please, please, please show a little sugar in return. I really, really need your help at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And last but not least, don't forget to use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. All right. Up first today, we have Alexander. Alexander wrote in and said, To varying degrees, all my relationships have been spoiled by my jealousy and insecurity over things like my girlfriends going out to nightclubs, having male friends, and going to things like salsa classes. After my last breakup, I went through therapy and felt I had the jealousy under control, but I'm now in a new relationship and I see the old patterns emerging. To what extent is this something I should be eradicating, or is jealousy over these types of issues natural for men, with the real problem being their acceptance in modern society? That's from Alexander. Hey, Alexander, how you doing tonight? Hi, Steph. I'm very well. How are you? All right. What, what do you mean when you say their acceptance in modern society? You mean the acceptance of women having male friends and going out to nightclubs? Yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. Why is your girlfriend going out to nightclubs without you? Um, <laughs> well, we go sometimes together. Um, it's just, I mean, she goes with her friends sometimes, or she might go. Um, I mean, we, one of our first dates was to the nightclub. Um, it's something we do quite often. It's just, uh, you know, when I'm not there, I, I'm wondering if she's safe and, and all this sort of thing. No, no, um, no, no, no. Don't weasel out on me, brother. Don't, don't say to me you're wondering if she's safe. That would be fear, not 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 jealousy, right? What you what you're wondering uh, is if she's flirting with other men, right? Uh, partly, yeah, yeah. Okay, because your your question was around jealousy, right? Hmm. No, you're right. You caught me there. <laughs> yeah, like let's just be frank, man. That this is you're anonymous. You know, let's let's just be let's cut to the chase. You know, let's just cut to the chase. <laughs> 
So you're sure. concerned that she's going to be uh, flirting with other men uh, and that she might end up doing um, sexy time stuff with other men, right? Or, or be attracted to another Correct. man. Yeah, yeah, e- either or. Is she more attractive than you are? Um, no, I'd say we're probably around the same. Does she think that you're the best man for her? Yes, the majority of... That's a long pause. I got (laughs) it. It's a long pause. That's fine. I mean, I appreciate the thoughtfulness, but... So does she think you're the best man for her? Well, it's not something that she said, um, but I don't think it's something that is normally said. But I, I was thinking about in terms of her actions and how they what they sort of explain. But I, I would say that, yeah, she is generally of that thought. <laughs> well, okay, so because we need to know whether or not your emotions have empirical evidence for them. Because if they do, then you're not crazy. And if they don't, then it's a little nutty, right? Right, correct. How much money do you make? Um, you don't have to give me details, just roughly. <laughs> Uh, for my age, a good amount. <clears throat> good amount of money. Uh, uh, and uh, are you? where are you both on a sort of 1 to 10 scale of attractiveness? Uh, I'd say I'm probably uh, 6.5, and she's probably uh, verging on a 7. All right. Um, wh- is it due to weight issues, or are there other things that are unappealing or less appealing? Um, no, I, I've, I used to be overweight and I probably have some insecurities that are hanging on from that. Um, so maybe I'm more than a 6.5, uh, maybe, but, um, I don't see myself as an attractive guy, like a really attractive guy. I mean, I'm confident and I'm, I'm not, I don't ever worry about my looks or anything, but, uh, there's probably some hangovers from when I was a, a fat child. Right. Right. For me, and this is about you, but I'm just going to give you, it's easier sometimes to see it from somebody else's perspective. Do you know, sure. I hear that there are other shows out there on the internet. Have you have you heard anything about this? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I keep, I keep getting the feeling that there are other people trying to get my listeners' attention on the internet. I don't know if it's, and some of it involves more, even more nudity than this channel offers. And so I'm, you know, I'm fairly aware that there are tons and tons of uh, other shows out there and more and more every day, right? I mean, when I first started this like 10 years ago, there was like me and two other people on iTunes. (laughs) Right now, there's like (laughs) so much choice out there. And, Mm. you know, I have a wonderful set of listeners. But, uh, you know, we get threats all the time. Oh, yeah, you did this. I'm going to cancel. You did this. I'm going to cancel. <laughs> you know, they're all, uh, all all of that, right? So I don't I don't care. <laughs> maybe I should. I don't know. Uh-huh. But I don't care. You know, people like, go uh, go watch other people's shows. I, I've done shows where I help other people get set up in their shows. I, rec- I regularly recommend other people's shows. Like, go enjoy other people's shows. Why can I do that? Uh, because you're confident in what you offer. Yeah, because 
we, we're doing the best. We have the best show. <laughs> we have the best show. I genuinely believe that. So yes, go play the field. Go turn it up. Go slut it around with all these other people's shows. You'll come back. You'll come back to me. You'll come crawling back. No, I'm just kidding, right? But but uh, no, I mean, it, it, go enjoy other people's shows because there's no better show. You know, there, there, there are other shows that have individual aspects that are better. No question. You know, other shows, um, higher production values, believe it or not, than me in a white background. <laughs> Come on. I'm an animated movie when it comes to it anyway. I'm like three, de- three degrees of separation from a Looney Tunes character. But um, there are other shows that have, you know, more pointed jokes. There are other shows that, uh, I don't know, whatever, right? But, but when it comes to the whole package, yeah. You know, and also, wh- why do I not have a set? You know, well, A, I like to stand, and B, I'm interesting enough. <laughs> you know, like, let's get these people that's like, this show's nine minutes long. You should get to the point sooner. It's like, I, I don't think I should be managing your ADHD. That may be something you want to look into with someone else. But, and it's not like I'm immune to feedback. You know, people make suggestions, and I'll listen to it and so on. But this is the best show. And, you know, if I thought that was a better show, I'd go work for them. <laughs> so uh, if, if you have confidence that you're the best person you know or as the old grace jones song goes you know i'm not perfect but i'm perfect for you if you're confident that you're the best fit that you're the best person for your girlfriend then you should feel confident you know the old thing if you love someone set them free if they come back to you they're yours if they don't they uh, never were your concern is that there's some shadow penis out there you can't compete with Good term, shadow penis. It's always following, like a giant inchworm on a white wall, following, following, attempting to boa constrictor and pull away the vital eggs of our future. The shadow penis, it knows, it follows, it haunts our very dreams. It is the deep state versus the shadow penis. It is the new Marvel comic that should be made but never will be. Well, that's uh, made it ten times more terrifying now. Right. No, but it is, right? Listen, there are guys out there circling your woman. Yeah, of course. Sure. There are there are, you know, sleaze bags out there who are just like, Yeah, she's you know, she's cute, she's you know, and I don't care. She's got a boyfriend and this is why there used to be chastity belts. <laughs> I'm not saying there should be, but this is why they uh, used to be there, right? But, uh, oh, no, the shadow penis is definitely out there, and it's definitely uh, making the moves. You know, there used to be a show called The Puppetry of the Penis. I don't know exactly what it was about, but I'm pretty sure that people made shadow puppets with their own uh, penises. Um, for me, right. that would be a pretty challenging show. I can only do Florida um, life-size. That's about it. But... <laughs> the, the, no, the shadow penis anaconda girlfriend grabbing, uh, 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 you know, deep monstrous, they're out there and they want to grab your women for sure. And and what do you do? Well, I guess culturally there are two approaches. One, you could set up a system wherein they're covered from head to toe and not, lead to, not allowed to leave their house without a male relative present. That's one way to deal with insecurity of the shadow penis. The other is just be great. Just be great. Be great for her. You know, keep her happy in bed. Keep her happy in conversation. Keep her engaged. Keep her entertained. Be such a great boyfriend that now she's got to worry about you with the shadow vagina. I see. I guess, I guess, um, 
I mean, I, I, I do my best to be the best. <laughs> um, I guess the problem is that, um, I mean, not all women, but I guess a lot of women don't always realise situations they put themselves in. So things like nightclubs and male friends who, as you said, are probably more shadow penis than, than friend. Wait, hang um, on. So your solution to your insecurity is to take away the moral agency of your girlfriend? Like she just doesn't under- – does she not understand that men want to have sex with women? Does, does she not know what about 95% of the internet is for? Like I don't understand. What does that mean? She doesn't know that, that guess, men are – Pound dogs? I mean, I, I guess my point is that when I – and when I look for a partner, I'd look. I'd rather look for somebody who does have that ability to recognise that, you know, all the blokes going to salsa classes aren't really interested in learning how to dance. Um, and if I were with someone who didn't realise that, then I would, um, aside from any feeling of, of fear of the shadow penis, it would be a, am I really uh, going to be with a girl who can't realise that these classes are attended by blokes who just want to, you know, meet women. I guess it's more of a... Yeah, let me, let me just sort of drop a bomb on you here, Alexander. (laughs) Female protestations that they just have no idea what men are like are entirely false. They are entirely, completely and totally false. Look, you're a woman, let's say, and you grow up in a society where... There's constant sexualization of women, more so of women than of men. Mm. Every ad she looks at, which is supposed to appeal to a man, has a half-naked woman on it, right? All of the people who are in the swimsuit editions of various magazines are all, like, you know, stunningly attractive, uh, genetically improbable mutants, right? <laughs> I mean, the entire the, there's a whole uh, industry of how to make women look other than they actually look right i mean it's basically there's an entire industry devoted to turning window into women into picasso paintings of male lust stimulation right i mean it's not like women say oh you know it'd be really great if i could just walk around for eight hours on tiny little leaning towers of pizzas i call high heels i mean it's ridiculous right you know it'd be excellent if i had to get up an hour earlier to apply enough foundation to create a stucco wall on my face and then put in weird Annie Lennox singing Freddie Mercury raccoon eyes on myself and then put myself into a tight skirt where, like, it's a tight pencil skirt to the point where, like, if there's some sort of Japanese-style natural disaster, in about an hour I can make it about eight and a half feet before eat, being eaten by some Godzilla. Ooh, you know it'd be excellent, too? Stockings, because nothing spells comfort like an extra layer of polyester skin. Ooh, you know what else would be excellent? <laughs> really tight push-up bras so that I can turn my tits into a shelf for people to rest their drinks on. And you just go on and on, right? Ooh, you know what else would be excellent? Tiny spears through my ears so that I can hang bits of or from the sides of my head. I mean, it's all lunatic, right? So look at the mall. What is the mall devoted to? The mall is devoted into sexualizing women. The mall is devoted into, you know, as one woman said, she was a model and she said, oh yeah, high heels. They turn my ass, they put my ass up on a shelf for everyone to see. And uh, this is all completely well known. This this idea that women, oh, I just, I, I, I just didn't know that, that, that men just found women that sexy. It's like, oh, come on. I mean, that's, that's just completely ridiculous. So there's no woman who has an IQ more than about 75 or so. I'm just spitballing here. There's no woman out there who doesn't know that men primarily are interested in sex. 
And there's no woman out there who doesn't know that, at least in Western culture, it's the woman's job to say yes or no to the endless office that men have for uh, sex. That is the basic reality. I mean, have you ever been to like a rural post office? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know where you're from, but in in rural post offices, they have these mailboxes. Like, so for people who don't want the mail delivered straight to their house or whatever, they have these mailboxes. And there's like a thousand of them in a tiny room. And, you know, we used to, I used to play this game with my daughter called, you know, let's find 672. And it's like, who could find it first kind of thing, right? And uh, that is a woman's choice, right? The woman's choice is it's like a rural mailbox full of penises and money. And, you know, generally they come hand in hand. Or I guess if the penis is too much in hand, then it's not in the mailbox. But you get the idea. Hey, mailbox, that kind of works. Mail, looking for a box. Anyway, so this is the choice that women have these. I've got this master key that opens up a thousand lockboxes of male penises with money. Uh, That is a woman's choice. And so when women are like, well, my husband just turned out to be this bad person. It's like, nope. You know, and unless you're like uh, Helen Keller and nobody around is a fetishist, um, you really don't have, I mean, you have choices. Women have choices. Women have choices. Women have choices. So men propose and women dispose. Men offer up sexuality and women choose their boyfriends. Who, when you met your girlfriend, Alexander, who asked who out? Um, uh, she asked me out, actually. She did. How interesting. And so what did she say? Um, she said, I'm, uh, I'm, I've got tickets to this. Uh, it was a nightclub, actually, because her friends couldn't make it. So she said, she said uh, I've got two t- tickets to him to join me. And it was a date date? Like, she, you knew it was a date? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and did she say date, or that was just kind of assumed? It was just, insu- just assumed, yeah. And of the women you've gone out with, what proportion ask you out? Um... She was probably the only one, uh, at least for the first date. And then what happened? Uh, After the first date or at the date? Sorry, after the first date with her. Uh, It was great. We went out. We stayed out till uh, four or five, um, went to our separate homes. um, You went to what? And then went, went back to our separate homes rather than going back to and just having sex. You know, it wasn't one of those kind of dates. Um, Wait, one of those kind of dates <laughs> where you're not complete sluts and man whores and you don't just bump uglies the very first time you go out on a date. I don't know. I'm old enough where that is not a date you have to differentiate. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, um, I mean, second date, uh, I think I asked and then it was it was a fairly reciprocal thing. It was, wasn't always one of us asking the other one. And how um, many dates till you had sex? Actually, quite a lot. Well, for me and for probably for people of my generation, maybe. Uh, I think around 10. Hmm. Yeah, I think the three-month rule is good, but that's a topic for uh, another time. And how many birds, how many girls have you gone out with uh, over the years? Or we've gone on a date, but I don't mean like being boyfriend, like a date, a first date. Uh, do, Do you mean just dates or casual sex or what do you mean? Wait, you've gone on casual sex with no dates? Yeah. And what's this, like, women you meet at a nightclub? Uh, mostly on uh, dating apps. So you just meet these girls in these dating apps and you just go over and you have sex and you never see them again? 
Yeah, not not loads, not as much as some of my friends, but that definitely happens. Wow. Oh, West. <laughs> oh, West. All right. So, um, the, um, so how many, yeah, so how many, but how many girls have you asked out on dates, let's say? Forget the STD sperm jacking um, potential going on with the, the apps or whatever. Dates probably uh, in my life, probably 10. Okay. So nine, nine times out of 10 or whatever, you end up asking the girl out, right? So in general, that's yeah. the way it works, right? Sure. Right. Now, when you grew up as a child, did you have any examples in your life, Alexander, of female infidelity or female wandering eye? Not until I was uh, 18. So I don't know if that counts. So your mother and your father were happily married and monogamous and uh, had fidelity and so on? Yeah, yeah, one of them did. Um, then they divorced. Wait, um, one of them did? What do you mean? Uh, so one of one of my parents um, was uh, unfaithful, and then they then they divorced. And how old were you? Was it that that what happened when you were eighteen? Yeah, I found about I found out about it when I was eighteen, but I think it had been going on probably a couple of years before that. How long have you listened to this show for, Alexander? Um, only probably less than six months, I'd say. Do you think that? Who was it who was unfaithful? Uh, it was my mother. Right. Do you think that may have anything to do with your fear of female infidelity? I did think about that. Good, uh, good, okay. But, <laughs> but uh, I can remember being, uh, having a fear of female infidelity in my first relationship when I was uh, I was only 15, 16, and I remember the exact same feelings then. Whether they've uh, amplified since then, maybe. Um, well, Alexander, once a cheater, always a cheater. Your mother was caught or confessed when you were 18, right? Yeah. Do you think there were any indications, no matter how subtle, no matter how unconscious, no matter how oblique, how corner of the eye there might have been, indications that you might have picked on, picked up on as a child that your mother had a tendency towards infidelity? I don't... Honestly, no. Um, she, it was an absolutely terrible marriage. Um, and it, she, it, I was 18 because um, they'd waited and she waited until I'd left for university before they divorced. Um say that it'd been a terrible marriage for well probably all of my life but I definitely picked up on her unhappiness and her lack of uh, love to him and her lack of um, attention and devotion and whatnot I don't think I picked up on any signs of oh dear uh, uh, infidelity simply because they didn't really have any friends um, and I never saw them interacting with anyone else um, but all of the other signs I guess I did see Wow. So you got to listen back to this at some point, Alexander. You are what is known as a white knight. Do you know what that means? Yeah, sort of. When you described your parents' bad marriage, you described your mom as the perfect victim. Did she contribute in any way to the bad 
aspects of the marriage by chance? Um, it's a bit of a chicken or egg situation. I know my dad was never, was often unkind and mean to her, but whether that was because he just wasn't happy with Did you ever see your wife because she, mother being unkind to your father? Um, yeah, yeah. Do you view that as merely yeah, reactive or was that ever proactive? It was reactive, but it was over the top. So she would be unnecessarily uh, spiteful, I think. But you said reactive. So she was always reacting to your father's meanness. It was always self-defense, although it may have been over the top. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. So she's a victim. Uh, not probably not entirely, but partly, yeah, big time. Do you think that's true? Is that accurate? Well, she she was a victim of the way that my dad treated her in the same way that I was a victim of the way that my dad treated me and that my brother was because he was no, he had this no, <laughs> not even close, not even in the same dimension, let alone the same galaxy. Right. What is the difference between your mother's relationship with your father and your father's relationship with you? Theirs is obviously romantic and sexual. Good, yes. Happy to hear that distinction. What else? <laughs> um, I don't know. What, what, what oh, good job, now? feminists. You have just programmed these young men in ways that I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. All right, Alexander. Well, Alexander. He's a man and she's a woman. No! No! <laughs> no! No, no, no. All right. All right. Did you choose your relationship with your father? No. Did your mother choose her relationship with your father? She did. Ah! There we go. Look at that. Ding, ding, oh, ding. She has agency. And you know what's funny? Yep. You know what's funny? You are holding to this position. And listen, I sympathize. I'm not trying to, you know, be mean or, or talk down to you. I sympathize because this is the programming. Women are victims, women are victims, women are victims, which allows them to be vicious bullies sometimes. Not talking about your mom just in general, right? But right after yeah. I said, women have choice, women have choice, women have choice, right? Remember the whole rural mailbox analogy of the shadow penis with the money and the luck? And right after I say, women have choice, women have choice. You can't process that your mother had a choice in choosing your father, which you never had. Mm. Right? Who taught you that your mother was a victim? My mother, I guess. Wow. Why do you think your mother taught you that she was a victim? Um, uh, well, it was obviously benefit her, Arif. And harms you, but we'll get to that in a second. What was your mother's motivation for teaching you that she was a helpless flower floating on the turbulent seas of the testosterone-laced aggression of your father, which somehow she had an arranged marriage she couldn't escape, there was no choice, she just had to try and manage this mysterious, brutal animal she was locked in a cage with against her will, and it was... Ex wait. Mm. What is in her benefit yeah, to give you that narrative? Well, it excuses her, excuses her of any of any blame or wrongdoing or anything like that, and um, gives her a free pass, I guess. 
Right. She gets to be a victim. She gets sympathy. And nobody judges her. Nobody criticizes her, right? What harm does it do to you to have the perspective that women are helpless victims? You already answered this, by the way, but you don't know it. (laughs) Um, Well, it makes me, I guess it would make me see the man as the aggressor and the, 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 the wrongdoer. Right. Because when I said, your girlfriend goes to clubs, and you said, yes, because, you know, my concern is that things will just happen to her, that she just won't understand the situation that she's in. These predatory male shadow penises are just going to slip themselves up her nose, strangle her brain, and drag them away to some cave of masculine predation, right? Because Because your mother is willing to say, okay, listen, in order to get myself off the hook for any wrongs I might have done, I am going to implant in you, Alexandra, the idea that women are victims. Now, the fact that this screws you up in your relationship with your girlfriend doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is I get off the hook and I am not held accountable for the mistakes and the wrongdoings and the brutalities that I may have enacted, right? It not only benefits her, but it harms you. It's not just that she saves herself, it's not like she, she's stuck in quicksand and, and she gets out by pulling a vine and you watch. No. She gets herself out of the quicksand by pushing you into it and standing on your head and saying, well, no, no. Females have no agency. Good, I'm off the hook. Sorry about the rest of your life, Alexander, where you've got to look at women as leaves in the wind. Be paranoid that they have no choice, no action. I'm sorry about the kind of woman this is going to program you to want to be with. Sorry about that. But hey, mama needs to wear white. So you get to wear fog. I mean, to play slightly devil's advocate, I mean, for every time that my mother said it was my dad's fault that things were going wrong, my dad would say that it was my mother's fault that things were going wrong. Um, and I guess I believed my mother more because she would, I guess, tell me more. Um, well, and society. So I, I guess I had. And society. society. Right. I mean, there's this weird thing where feminism has grown from the assassination of female agency to the stripping of female agency. Right. So your mother repeats it more and is backed up by everyone and everything, right? Yeah. I just uh, had a conversation with Dr. Duke Pester about King Lear. Watch that play. Watch that play. See the agency that women are granted in that play for both good and evil. Shakespeare is very even-handed in his assassination of moral responsibility to the genders, which is why he's so desperately needed now, which is why they're trying to keep him out of education these days. Can't have any Lady Macbeths, because that's more like a matriarchy. Can't have any Gonerals and Regans in King Lear. All Cordelia's, all victims. You can't have shows that give women clear moral agency. If they do bad, they do bad out of love. They do bad out of wanting to protect their children. They do bad out of dedication to some misguided ideal that they can't possibly know. They do the best they can with the knowledge they had. They... Strip moral agency, strip moral agency, strip moral agency. It's the most sexist, vicious, undermining ideology to strip women 
a female agency and I f- of moral agency. I fight against this because my daughter's going to grow up and go out in the world. I don't want her to go out in the world where people strip her moral choices from her and call her a victim everywhere she goes. That is insidious. That is corrosive. That can undermine even the staunchest female soul. So you believed your mother because she was more insistent about it, more invested in it. And mm. you didn't believe your father because society won't back him up. But back up your mom all the time, right? Mm. Did your father have a, an affair? No, no. Um, he, no, I never saw him interact. I don't think I ever saw him interact with another woman, to be honest. <laughs> if you were to ask your mother why she chose your father to marry, what mm. would she say? Maybe you have. Probably a sense of, I think his sense of humor, I think, is the, is the thing that um, she liked. Right. Did she notice any, dis- would she have noticed any dysfunction before she married him? Yeah, I'd say so. He, uh, when they met, she, uh, he was traveling the world with rock bands and he was a bit of an alcoholic and... Um, Wait, he was a roadie? She was a... Yeah. <laughs> she married a roadie who turned out to be dysfunctional? Who oh, no. Next thing you know, she's going to date a celebrity and find out that they're a smidge narcissistic. Who could guess these things? Who could know? Yeah. She married a roadie, and she was um, the opposite of a roadie. She's a, a sort of an Irish Catholic girl. <laughs> so um, she, she knew what she was going into, I think. Was your father a Catholic? No, he wasn't. He wasn't religious at all. So didn't she betray her religion and and its commandments? Uh, I think by that point, uh, the Catholicism had waned. Uh, (laughs) I'm guessing so. (laughs) I'm guessing so. Backstage passes will do that. You know, going backstage to, uh, you know, lick the sweat off Steven Tyler's youthful abs uh, probably have a little bit more to do with uh, exciting female reaction than, um, I don't know, Papal edicts. I'm just going out on a limb here, but I think you're right. I think it was probably because she went to a convent school with some. You know, she's taught and raised by abusive nuns. Oh, wait a minute! Look at that. <laughs> you you just gave me another excuse for your mother's behaviour. Look at the, oh, you see now it's the nuns. It's I, the I, nuns I, who who made her do what she did. All no, no, we no, are I, is I was, blowing in the wind. <laughs> We've got little eggs blowing in the wind. The tits are giant saucers that blow in the wind. You, you understand, right? I mean, this is the knee-jerk reaction that I, we all have. We're all programmed to have. We are well, ex- I, I meant, like we cough I up excuses that, um, for women, like cats cough up furballs after a particularly delicious self-licking session. I mean, I, I, in fairness, I meant the, that that was the reason why that the. Uh, Catholicism had waned, but I, right. I guess I'm... It was the nun's fault. It's the, I don't yeah. care. You still... It's not like, well, my mother made a choice to abandon religion. My mother made a choice to do something against her religious edicts, but it wasn't my mother's choice. It was her blind reaction to the actions of the nuns. She didn't yeah. make any choices. Yeah. She didn't evaluate anything. She's just like a pinball, just bouncing around, like a tumbleweed being blown around by the winds, right? Maybe not. That's kind of sexist, right? 
Do you view you do you, let me ask you this? Do you view your father as having moral agency? Did he make any choices that he's responsible for? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Good. Okay, so we have one parent who has moral responsibility and accountability and one parent who kind of doesn't. And then you wonder yeah. why you're jealous. Do you understand? I do. Why? Tell me why. Tell me tell me the connection. Uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that whenever my girlfriend goes out to a nightclub, that she's just there, just like a, a leaf blowing through a, a, down the street, that anything that happens to her happens to her, and it's not her fault. And well, yeah, because, she's you know, she, she's reacting to her environment. And so she, if she's in an environment where there may be sexually assertive males, something's going to happen because she just doesn't make choices. Things mm-hmm. just yeah. happen to her. She just reacts to things. Yeah. So you can't trust her that. because she doesn't exist. You can't trust her because she's not there. You can't rely on her because she has no willpower no moral conscience, no choice, no autonomy, no authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just like a kitten in a windstorm, you know, maybe maybe she'll land at a good place, maybe she won't. I mean, where, where, do, you, where do you draw the line there? I mean, if she's got no... Oh, agent, if, no, I mean, she if, does. If, if I'm saying complete... you think she does. No, no, okay. Okay, go ahead. No, I agree. So if she's got complete agency... Um, and that she should be able to go to these places and anything that happens is her decision. Um, I mean, that's fine. I can get on board with that. But say, for example, she was, there was some, it wasn't a nightclub she was going to. It was a, um, I guess it was a nightclub, but everyone there was naked and everyone there was literally just having sex i mean if she went there and had sex it was her decision and she can choose not to but i don't think anyone will be comfortable with their girlfriend saying oh, i'm off to a sex party i'm just going to watch and, and have a nice glass of wine um so where, where does the line go does she want to go to sex orgy <laughs> places <laughs> no <laughs> But of course, but then she would be making the choice to say, I want to go to a sex orgy place, in which case she's saying, I no longer want a monogamous monogamous relationship. I want to go and bang 17 other linebackers. And it'd be really great if you had a sandwich out for me when I got home. Cuck. I'm saying if she uh, if she went there just to just to watch, she said, I just want to go there and and, and watch. I'm not going to do anything. Um, She wanted to go there and watch people having sex. If she if she did that, oh yeah, it's just a hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Well, you know, I would say it is absolutely uh, your choice to go. If uh, you know, I don't like it. I think it's gross. I think it's weird. Uh, I think it's wrong. But if you want to go and watch people um, who don't have porn standards of physical attractiveness, right? I mean, if you just want to go and watch random people, that's like going to karaoke and thinking you're going to get a concert. Like, I mean, who knows what horrible, squidgy man mountains and flesh land whale jelly beast monsters are going to be bumping uglies in some squalid underlit pit or overlit, God help you. Oh no, hairy moles bouncing up and down. Oh no. (laughs) 
like, oh no, it's facts spilling all over the place. Oh, look, there's a guy in a knee brace who's crying. It's like, I don't want to see any of that stuff. If you're going to do it, at least let the professionals filter some people out for you. You know, go to iTunes for your music. Don't just go and listen to your local karaoke club and think you're going to come out with anything other than bleeding eyeballs. So, because people think, oh yeah, Bono, how tough can it be? And then they find out that it's really tough for the audience if it's tough for you. So, no, I would say, and give all the reasons as to why, you know, it's that old song, um, if you're looking for trouble, you know, better get it from me, right? I mean, if, if you want to, you know, do something kinky sexually, then, you know, how about we discuss it and figure out if I can um, manage it as your boyfriend or whatever, right? I mean, have a conversation yeah. with me, because if you want to go out and be sexually titillated by other people uh, having sex right there uh, in front of you. Plus, you may sit down or touch something. And God knows, imagine <laughs> if you bring one of those weird f- sort of fine body fluid blue light things, you know, like the uh, the bones. Oh, there's there's a spot of blood between the floorboards. It's like, imagine waving that. It'd be like setting fire to the sun. My eyes, they burn from fluids of unholiness. And so why would she want to why would she want to do that? Cuz she's sexually turned on by watching other people. So then is she what? She going to come home and have sex with you while thinking about other people? So, you know, I'd make the case and and she still has full moral agency. And I'd say, uh, you have full moral agency. I'm making the case. I am not your jailer. I am not your owner. Uh you can go off and make that. But let me tell you, um when you come back, your key won't work anymore. Because you have moral agency to go out and watch ugly people have sex with each other, which, frankly, I think a sane person would pay to not see. But let's say you can go and do that. Well, you have moral agency, honey, and so do I. And you have the moral agency to go watch other people, you know, slam their distorted sticky bits into each other. And I have the moral agency to make a phone call and change the fucking locks. So that's that's essentially... I mean, so you, that's one place you can draw the line at, at sex parties, which uh, is uh, something that <laughs> I don't have to worry about. It was just a uh, uh, hypothetical. Or do you? But, um, the- no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Just, just messing <laughs> with your paranoia. Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Your jealousy. Go on. That's all good. Um, so that if you, I assume you would draw the line there, but it, would it be too much of a stretch to draw the line at nightclubs? I mean, if you think about the the views that people Women go to nightclubs so that men will drool over them. Okay, so if that's, that's somewhere that you would draw the line as well then? Yeah. I, mean, I want to go dancing. No, you don't. No, you want men to look at you with lust in their eyes because that's an endorphin hit for women, right? Yeah. So, so, so if that's where you draw the line, then I would have – I would have. I mean, if I draw the line there, then that would be – I would have had to break up with every single of my last girlfriend's. And I would probably never have had a girlfriend in my entire life. No, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh, the slippery slope argument. Look, if the slippery slope leads down to a Polanski-style orgy of human hideousness, I think it's okay to get off that slippery slope. But your argument, Alexander, is, well, my girlfriends all want to go and do quasi-sexual stuff without me. And so if I have, if I won't go out with women like that, then there are no other women in the universe that I could possibly go out with. Bullshit. You're just kind of in the underworld, right? I mean, you're kind of in the underworld of dysfunctional people, perhaps, right? 
but just you raise your standards, right? And you say, no, I don't want to be interested in in someone like that. Uh, do, do, do you think Margaret Thatcher was doing that in her youth? I mean, come on. I mean, you, you get all of this, right? You just Sure, you won't get to go out with the kind of women you've been going out with, but that's probably a good thing because those women are helping to keep jealousy aflame, right? Yeah, no, you, you, that's a fair point. Um, I guess I've got to start going back to church and meet, meet some women there. <laughs> you know, there's there's uh, there's infinitely worse places to look than church. Um, that's not a bad place to 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 chat with uh, with women. And I know, I know my history, and I've talked about this stuff before. But if I had to choose between average Christian woman and average atheist woman, um, I'm I'm on I'm all up in that cross cleavage, frankly. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm all down for that. Um, so I, I guess the, the circle that we've come around to um, is, I mean, we started talking about how that I'm crazy for being jealous about her going to nightclubs. I know, I never said that. that. Oh, no, 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 no. I never said that. <laughs> if you want to have that part of the conversation, you can have that with yourself. I never called you crazy. <laughs> Not crazy, but... Um, no, I never even said you were wrong. I never said you were dysfunctional at all in that way. Okay. We, we looked at some causality that if your yep. mother um, chose a bad husband and then blamed him like she never made that choice and then screwed another man outside the marriage and then basically said, well, it's because I was unhappy because your father made me do it. Like if she's acting and then pretending like she's not making any choices, then that's going to strip women of responsibility, female agency from your mind. And therefore, you're going to expect things to just happen to your girlfriend rather than having them look at them make choices, right? So like, well, be clear, it's always amazing to me when people that, uh, sort of say back what they've heard from the conversation, but that's not what I said. <laughs> well, we're, we're also saying that I, the reason that I perhaps get jealous is that I'm not confident that I'm the best man that she's meeting. Um, sure, but that's not crazy uh, either, and that's not, a, that's not a dysfunction, right? Because you can always up your game about that, right? But if you accept your woman going into – okay, let me ask you this. How old is she? 23. 23. Are you guys committed? Like, is it a monogamous relationship? Are you looking for a future together? Are you looking to get married at some point? Do you want kids? I mean, where are you in the arc of the relationship? Uh, very monogamous, definitely. Um, it's fairly early days, but we're... we're how, how, how long have you been going on? Uh, around three months. Mm-hmm. So you're monogamous, and have you talked... Anything about your future and what you want out of the relationship in the long run? Not yet, but I'd say that's probably only a month or so off. Why would you wait for four months to find out if you want the same things out of relationship? Um, because I'm confident that if I tell her what I want, she would be impressed enough that she would probably want it too. And what do you want? Um, nothing out of the ordinary, just that I'm, I, I would be very confident in saying that I would want a, a family and a, a bunch of kids. Right. And so you think she'd want that too, right? Yeah, I think she, she'd want it with me, yeah. Right. Not a lot of nightclubbing when you become a parent. Just <laughs> wanted, to, wanted to point that out. Just wanted to point sure. that out. Yeah, I mean, if if I were in your shoes, I mean, I don't tell people what to do because it's sort of pointless. But um, uh, do you do you know if she wants kids? By the way, 
don't. Um, I haven't asked her. I, I yeah. assume that. Why would you? It's only what you does. want. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it's a bit weird to ask early on. I see. No, no. Um, no, it's not weird to ask early on. It's efficient. <laughs> Could be both. Um, no, it's not. Listen, if you're interested in the woman, then you have conversations yeah. about your future so you don't waste time and get your heart broken. Because if let's no, say that I, she I, says, yeah. well, God, I don't ever want to have kids or I don't ever want to get married or whatever, right? No. Mm-hmm. You know, why is a date less important than a job interview? You know, when I go to job interviews, so when I went to job interviews in the past, people are like, well, where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years, right? It's a reasonable question to ask in a job interview. Yeah. Why, is, why is the mother of your child or the potential partner for your entire life, why is that less important like, why can't you say on a first date, well, where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? What do you want out of life? Jesus, that to me is the think, first date material questions. What the hell else are you going to talk about? The weather? That's already happened. Uh, well, I think the, uh, I guess that you've got, uh, my, my view is that you've got to find the right time. And if you do it too early, um, then you're going to, I guess, scare them off a bit. Um, or if you leave it too late. And, and what do you mean you, you scare them time. off? Like if you say, at some point, I'd like to get married, uh, that's sort of my life goal is to be married and be a father. Why would that scare a woman off if if she has think, similar perspectives, right? I mean, it, it's not saying yeah. definitely with you on the first date, but, you know, it's about being honest, right? I mean, if you want to get married and to be a father, that's the whole point of dating. You understand that? It, it's getting rid of the people oh, yeah, who yeah. aren't going to be great mothers for your children. It's a whole bunch of like, knock them aside, knock them aside, knock them aside. Oh, you're not going to be good for, 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 for being the mother to my children because you lack self-knowledge. Well, you're not going to be good because you want to have a career full-time forever and never, ever take any time off for children. Well, you're not going to be good because you're too old or you're not going to be good because whatever, right? It's just getting rid of the people like it's like in sales, you, you have to go through like in high level sales, you can go through 500 people to find sure. the person who's going to say yes, right? And yeah. so with dating, it's just it's eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. I eliminated a woman <laughs> because she wore glasses when she didn't have to. She just thought they made her look cool or, or look smarter. And I'm like, eh, done. I am not going uh, I'm not going to tie my my uh you know I'm not going to tie my uh kite to the the star of crazy hey I'm going to wear glasses when I don't need to. It's like yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put a fucking cast on my leg cuz I think it makes my ass look sexy. Come on, give me a break. It's, very, it's, very it's just very getting rid of dumping, getting rid of dumping. You know, like I, yeah, I had a long distance relationship with a girl and she she said uh, we we had some after we broke up we'd had some disagreement about phone bills or something like that and she's like well my father says you have to do this and I'm like yeah okay here's the money a and b oh I'm really glad that you know <laughs> we're not dating when you gotta get daddy into your fights it's like oh my god I mean it's so sad uh, I broke up with a woman because she um, she would have performance anxieties during exams right she was studying a pretty demanding discipline. And I broke up with her because she's like, you know, I find exams really, really stressful. It's like, well, well, then why are you in this field? Well, you know, I like the field. Well, I said, you you know that after you graduate, there's going to be like actually real world exams called does your bridge stand or does whatever it is you're doing, your building or whatever it is. And she's like, well, you know, that'll be then. This is now. And it's like, eh. (laughs) sorry, can't can't do it. Right. I mean, it's just it's discard, discard, discard. You know, you're trying to yeah. find that uh, needle in a haystack. The important thing is to keep throwing away the straw. 
And so for me, it's like, well, you know, she she might be scared off. It's like, well, what does she think dates are for? Dates are for making babies in the long run or not. That's the whole reason we have penises and vaginas. It's the whole reason women wear makeup. And it's 99% of the reason why men go out and make money and build things is to attract eggs. So it's like, it's sort of weird, you know? It's like, it's like in a, in a first, in a first job interview, if you say, you know, if this works out, I, I might really like working here. Whoa, whoa, you just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> what? Why am I here at the job interview if not to try and get a fucking job? No, it's too soon. Let's have job interviews for four months and then tell me whether you're interested in working here. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, I guess, I guess, uh, in defence, if I may, the um, you're right to say that that marriage and maybe not marriage, but but, but having kids is the the ultimate aim of of dating. Um, but if you use the job interview analogy, you could say that uh, becoming CEO of a company is the ultimate aim of working somewhere. But I don't, I don't think, I mean, it may be, it would be, I guess, inappropriate for you to say in a job interview that, yeah, I want this job because, you know, I want to run this bloody place. Um, so no, I guess but that's, that's, the, that's not a good analogy because um, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't, that would be like saying, well, I, I really want to uh, get married and then be lord and master and ultimate dictator within my own home, and you will answer to me, woman. Of course. I mean, you know, any woman with any integrity is going to run screaming from such a, uh, um, well, let's just say Middle Eastern style of, of approach to marriage. Because if, you, if, you're a, if someone's hiring you and you say, I can't wait to be your boss and order you around, sure, of course, right? <laughs> I understand that. But if... If you do want to end up running the company and they say, where do you see yourself in five years? And you say, well, I'm very ambitious and I want to, you know, move up the ladder and, and do well and prove myself and contribute enough value to get more responsibility. And of course you should say that. Because if you have a boss who doesn't want somebody who's ambitious, you shouldn't go work for that person. You know, like we did this this show about don't, don't go to college, right? And I apologize to the people I intimated uh, in the heat of the moment that tradespeople were less intelligent. It's not the case. Tradespeople are fantastic. I apologize for that. I just wanted to mention that. A few people pointed that out. It's perfectly fair. Anyway, um, but in, in that, you know, people are like, well, you know, a lot of employers want a college degree. And it's like, yeah, because those employers are stupid. Because they're old school. They want the college degree to evaluate the person rather than them being able to evaluate the person. They want some piece of paper to evaluate someone's intelligence because they can't evaluate someone's intelligence. And why can't they evaluate someone's intelligence? Because they're not that intelligent themselves. Or maybe they're intelligent but not creative or not critical thinkers. Don't work for those people. Anyone who says, I need you to have wasted four years of your life getting into debt so I have to pay you more in order to get a degree which does very little to verify your intelligence, anyone who says that that's a necessity for you to work for them, you don't want to work for them. And if any woman runs screaming because you say, I want to get married and have kids someday, good, good, good. You just saved yourself a whole lot of time and heartache. And and you're keeping yourself free for the woman who's right for you. Who may just, you never know when this woman is gonna blow past, right? You never know when this woman is gonna blow past who is the perfect woman for you. I got a job at a trading company. Through that job in a trading company, I met a friend. That friend said, I'm joining a volleyball league. 
I said, I love volleyball. Actually, if I spent the rest of my life playing beach volleyball, I totally would. When I went to play volleyball, I met my wife. Now, if I'd been dating some woman, which wasn't going to go anywhere where we hadn't talked about anything, I wouldn't have met my wife. I mean, I'd have met her, but I'd be in a relationship and I don't, two time, right? So while you're wasting time treading water, not asking the basic questions, your wife might have come and gone in the tunnel of time. Ooh, you know, like, like a phase shift of the ambulance going past, gone, never to return. She passes by, she passes by. Be ready to catch, like the catcher in the rye. Be ready to catch the woman of your dreams. The readiness is all. You don't know when she's going to come. You don't know when she's going to blow past. You need to be ready, which means get people out of the way so you can focus on her. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And I think this weekend I'm going to go back to church and go join a volleyball league. Excellent. Sounds like you've got the right idea. Thanks very much for the call, Alexander. I wish you the very best, and let's move on. Thank you. All right, up next we have Bob. Bob wrote in and said, I've been called racist three times within the last year. As a black guy, this is very strange because it's technically against the liberal rules. However, I've started to see myself become increasingly xenophobic for lack of a better word. This is what I want for an immigration plan if I had President Donald Trump's ear. 1. Immediate expulsion of illegal immigrants. 2. End of birthright citizenship. 3. Revocation of citizenship to those born to illegal parents. 4. Change of immigration to Japanese system, merit-based immigration, and strict work visa rules. 5. Mandatory oath of allegiance, immigration oath, to receive the right to vote and government benefits. I feel like at worst the immigrants want to annihilate us, and at best they want to change our culture by coming here and changing our lives slowly. Someone asked me what composition I would like for the United States, and I immediately answered 80% white, 20% black, and make space for 1% other. Have I gone too far? Has moving to Texas made me dot dot dot? That's from Bob. (laughs) I'm sure there are a lot of people in Texas who would really like to know what the end of that sentence is. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Good to chat with you again, Bob. How are you doing? Absolutely. Um, oh, I, I, I have to uh, tell you that I heard the, the coolest two words today at a moment ago. Um, cross cleavage. <laughs> oh, <awesome>. yes. <laughs> Virtue and boobs. That's what keeps us going in life. Um, no, that's uh, so what? Uh, how did you end up being called a racist? Uh, what was the circumstance? Well, the first circumstance was when someone unbelievably learned that I intended to vote for Trump. And I told him that, that you know, there's an immigration problem and we need, we need a, you know, a major fix to it. I said it a little more explicitly. And he was a black guy. And he looked at me with a dumbfounded face and said, you're a racist. <laughs> And I, you know, immediately laughed a little and said, you know, Mexican is not a race, Muslim (laughs) is not a race, et cetera, et cetera. We've been through this probably repeatedly for the last bunch of months. The second time is when I come, there's an immigrant, wow, this is going to be funny. There's an immigration court in a building of my primary client down here in Houston. 
So one of the floors actually has an immigration court, and the rest of the building is a major, major corporation. I don't really want to say. And one day, it just looked like a homeless shelter, and none of them speak English, and they're wandering the halls. And I went and complained to the building about it, and I talked to an Indian guy about it at the company, and he said, man, what are you, why are you such a racist? <laughs> And I laughed and I said, man, you have a caste system in your country. <laughs> you have actual slavery. Yeah, <laughs> why are you so racist that you don't want to live in India? Why do you want to be around the white people so much? Right. So, so to wrap up, uh, I – well, there's one more thing I have to say, so I'll try to rush this. Uh, with the Indian guy, I eventually went to him and wrote the name of the four castes. And I said, which one are you? <laughs> And he looked at me with this face of dread, like, whoa, whoa, why, why are you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? And eventually he picked the top one, of course. <laughs> and I said, oh, you're royalty in your country. Hey, wait a second. Indians make the highest average in our country. So you're royalty in my country, too. <laughs> so kind of in jest, obviously. But um, and my my best friend I, I'm in my 30s, but my best friend's actually a 70-something-year-old guy because we share, really, we share deeply two passions of music, opera, classical music, and literature. We really love poetry. He used to be an English professor. Anyway, he called me alt-right a few days ago, and he yelled at me. He was mad at me about giving guns, wanting to give guns to crazy people, and and I'm... And he made me think, wait, what's going on here? Am I, have I become xenophobic or whatever? I, I, I am unable to find the exact right word. I'm sure you might have some, you might help me. And that's about it. Right. How did, um, did you, were you able to patch things up with your elderly friend? Um, maybe. I sent him an email and I begged him to consider that he lives in a very, he's rich, he's really rich, like he has millions and millions of bucks. He lives in a very rich community, completely insulated from from any of the things that he wants well, to... Well, not exactly. I mean, somebody does the gardening and cleans the pools and... Well, actually, well, <laughs> there's a little truth there. But I, I say, you know, I live in Texas. They send the Syrians here. They send a, there's a crap load of them here. And of course, as far as Latin American immigration goes, this is clearly the front line. And and I, I just said, you know, please consider that we have majorly different lives and you are a victim of your own success. You're, you're completely insulated from these things, m- minus the gardeners. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a benefit, right? It's a benefit to, to the rich having this kind con- like if you're rich, having a constant flow of low-rent immigration, of third-world immigration, is really good for you in a lot of ways because it drives down the wages of the people you pay. So I can understand why rich people are pro. uh, I mean, you have to be pretty damn cold to the poor people in your own country because, you know, fuck them, right? But if you're getting this constant flow of low-skilled labor coming in, it's it's great for uh, your net cash flow. You know, obviously... 
in terms of welfare and, and healthcare costs and, and all of it, it's disastrous in the abstract in the long run, but most people don't think that way, right? So, yeah, I mean, the fact that rich people, certainly if you're rich and on the left, or if you're inter- interested in political power and you're on the left, yeah, you want these people to come in because they're going to vote 80% plus for leftist policy. So, absolutely. But uh, even if you're on the right, uh, it's really, really great for your labor costs. It's the same thing with the H-1B visas, right? Like if you can get these tech serfs to come in who are kind of tied to their job and you can underpay them relative to American workers, at least in the short run, it's fantastic. Now, in the long run, they produce spaghetti code and bring down your entire organization because nothing can be maintained and nothing can be comprehended. But in the short run, you get to lower your overhead, you get to pump up your stock price. And because there's so much money being forced into the stock market by government, you get to make a killing. So yeah, I mean, the, the rich on the left and the right um, very, very keen on um, this kind of flooding in of uh, immigration. And the illegal immigration is, is fine for them too because it, um, it, it takes out the bottom uh, of the market and everyone falls down a level. Oh, I, I must comment on your video about particularly the tech industry and the flood of H-1B visas. It, I knew it was bad, but I did not know it was the unbelievable flood that it is the numbers were were pretty startling after i saw that and looked it up for myself oh yeah Um, there's all the people who are like oh yeah you got to get into tech tech is the future you know learn how to code it's like okay yeah well then you just bring this conveyor belt of of low-rent programmers in and displace american workers and oh it's wretched i mean you're gonna see man you want to see a big fight coming up I was just chatting about this with a friend the other day. You want to see a big fight coming up when Trump starts to take on the H-1B visa thing? The tech companies are going to go mental. They are going to go mental about this. Because let me tell you, if you're a manager and you're managing serfs, you suck as a manager. Like any decent manager does not want to be managing people who can't quit their jobs and who are underpaid and they, you know, don't follow the culture and they're only there for the money and they... You know, I mean, you don't want to manage people like that. You, you, you want to manage people who are creative and there by choice and can leave at any time because that, that means that you're managing creative, positive people who are probably, you know, brilliant and, and wonderful. And, and that's, that's where the challenging management is. And, and so the tech companies, all the good managers have left the tech companies and you've got these dismal slave drivers holding whip over these indentured servants. Uh, and so it's not just the price. All the managers are desperate to keep H-1B visas going because if they have to start managing a voluntary workforce, their suckiness as managers is going to be very, very quickly revealed. And that's going to roll all the way up to the top. The entire culture of tech companies has adapted itself significantly to these chained galley slave coders. And the culture that will have to change, it's like asking the Democrat Party to reinvent itself. You know, I think tech companies are going to fight this to the death. Are they going to use every weapon they possibly can to try and prevent this from happening? And I understand the economic incentives and all of that. I mean, I still think it's a fight well worth having. But uh, boy, you, you ain't seen nothing until you've seen uh, when you start touching tech management incompetence and greed for indentured servants, uh, boy, they're just going to hit back with everything they got. I mean, they'll be filtering, they'll be censoring, I believe. They'll be just doing massive amounts of stuff to try and keep all of this information from the public. It's no accident that, that, that you haven't heard that much about this because you got like, what, six companies in control of the vast majority of the American media. And these six companies are all dependent on tech labor. And so, of course, they want to keep this information basically away from the taxpayers because... Um, they get to hire these cheap workers and then they get to socialize the cost of unemployment insurance to everyone else. Yeah, so 
Well, I've I've seen it firsthand really badly. I mean, this company that that which will shall not be named has seventy. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it Voldemort. We'll call this company Voldemort has seventy percent, and wait, seventy oh percent like foreign worker program. Seventy percent Indians. Let's just say Indians. Right, right. <laughs> they're they're like they're about seventy percent Indian, and just. I, I never I can't really explain this to people because they think I'm racist or whatever word they they want to use. But when you're in conversations with people who are speaking a very different version of English, your processing, you know, your processor is now running at 60 percent instead of 20 percent because you have to actually pay attention harder and think harder just to understand this person. And right. then, and then other people are talking too, and it's it's um it's just so it's so d- much different. I don't think I can explain this very well to people. Uh, what do you think? I, I don't know if you've had experience in that situation. Oh yeah, no, very much, very much. When when you have people who come from similar backgrounds, um, and th- this is not race, right? But fundamentally, when you come from similar backgrounds, similar cultural references, uh, similar idioms, right? I mean, language is very very complicated, and we really take it for granted how much gets communicated by people who've grown up, not just with the same language, but all the same cultural references and all of the same jokes and all of the same, well, when I say this, I mean this, you know, all that. When that gets thrown out the wayside, massive inefficiencies can occur. And the other thing that's true in my particular experience, and I don't know how general this is, uh, maybe other people can let us know, but there are certain cultures that are very deferential to authority. And certain aspects of the Indian culture can be that way inclined. They don't tend to challenge management if they think that, you know, well, this is the orders. Okay, I'll, you know, I'll go do it, right? And that is a huge problem as well. You want people who've grown up in a culture that is more comfortable challenging authority because that way management gets challenged as well. Like I mentioned this before, but I had a very a, a great creative team of coders just did some fantastic, fantastic work. And they were more than willing to make fun of me and push back when they thought I was making a bad decision or making a mistake or didn't have complete information. They're the ones who taught me that SNL joke. They called me the fruity English bastard because uh, there's some SNL, I think, said it in a live joke where James Bond goes in and says, oh, I'd like a martini shaker, not stirred, but the olive just on one side, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, fine, you fruity English bastard. <laughs> and um, I liked that. I, I welcomed that. I, you know, I welcomed that with my daughter. I welcomed that, you know, with, with people in my life, you know, to push back. You know, I'm, I'm far from omniscient, <laughs> ridiculously uh, far from um, making right decisions all the time. So you need that kind of pushback. And when you have managers who don't get that kind of pushback from their employees, you know, I remember having conversations with people in the business world where I would say, you know, I think we should go and do something. I think you should go and do something. And they go off and do it. And it turns out that it was the wrong thing to do. And then they say, well, I knew it was the wrong thing to do. And I said, well, why the hell didn't you tell me? And they said, hey, you're the boss. That is disastrous, especially for software, where prevention is so fun, so much better than cure. And so if you have cultures that come into your country, which have a deferential relationship to authority, and Indian cultures have that to some degree, it can happen in other cultures as well, you end up as a manager lacking critical 360-degree feedback about your decision-making. 
And this, I think, is one of the reasons why so many software projects fail, is the programmers on the ground are crabbing and bitching about what's going on, but they don't get together and bring it to the attention of management. And what happens is when you have a bunch of deferential people in your workforce, competent managers don't want to manage them. Because nobody, I don't want to feel like a slave driver. I don't want to feel like I just, you know, when I say jump, you say how high. Like, I don't want to be, you know, what is your major malfunction, son? I don't want to be that guy who just hands out orders. I want it to be a conversation where the programmers have specific knowledge. I have a big picture vision, but, you know, we need to work together to make it happen. And managers who are comfortable with just having, you know, I program you, you program the computer, and neither, neither you nor the computer talks back to me. I mean, that's terrible and a disaster. And um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, sort of European-style Western capitalism uh, has been so innovative in the tech industry and why some of the, you know, Japanese and, and sort of the East Asian companies tend to be a bit more photocopy and a little less innovative because you need that 360 pushback uh, where managers and employees put their heads together and are willing to challenge each other. So it's, a, it's the language as well as the culture. Deference to authority breeds inefficiency in execution. Okay, yeah, this is... Um this is a really important conversation, and uh, I started to have it with a person that I met as soon as I moved to Houston about two years ago, and he just outright won't work with Indians. He just he won't do it, and I didn't understand him at first, and not at all. And I, you know, I mocked him. He's a great guy. I love him. I mocked him for a while, and then I. Uh, and then I started to see, and he also talked about this. I don't now. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about this, but he also talks about how they have a culture of cheating, and I've seen this firsthand. Um, in in the in the more public sense, there's uh, there's been some pictures that have been circulating of Indian parents climbing school walls to hand answers to their students, and apparently this. This is a more widespread phenomenon, particularly in India, that they, they simply cheat their way through things. And they even sued a university because the university installed new anti-cheating measures. And they said, quote, it's our birthright to cheat. And so due to all of this and then working in this kind of environment, it really it really changed. It really opened my eyes. Uh, do you do you know anything about that? Well, I've certainly heard of that. And I have known cultures where rules are vague suggestions you conform to in public, but you have no fundamental respect for the rules. And if you look at India, you have, I mean, the Indians that you see in the West, and I get this question all the time, it shows up in comments all the time, so I might as well address it here. The Indians that you show up in the West are the smartest, because they can't stand living in a country with an average IQ of 81. Right, so, so they're desperate to get to the West. And I, I understand that. But the problem is, of course, that in India, because you have a low average IQ, you know, whether genetic and, or environmental, it's a combination of both. And, you know, but, you know, nobody still, nobody knows how to change it. But because you sure. have that low average uh, IQ, IQ, you have a corrupt society. And because you have a corrupt society, nobody respects the rules. And because nobody respects the rules, cheating is not cheating. Like, we call it cheating. They call it well, it's, being smart it's within it's the game system. Theory. Well, it's, it becomes game theory in right. that situation. Right. 
Well, let's get back to. Well, hang on. So, so let me just let me just back it up with a little slice of fact here. Okay. Right. So, uh, 168 uh, countries. India is 76th out of 168 in corruption perceptions index, and that is pretty significant. Um, more than 62% of Indians, as of 2005, had first-hand experience of paying bribes or influence peddling to get jobs done in public. Um, almost 40 in 2008, almost 40% of Indians had first-hand experience of paying bribes or using contacts to get jobs done in public offices. And that is that is part of the culture, like like it or not, that that is part of the culture, and you can't just snap your fingers like the plane touches down in America and you get the entire history of American cultural experience and American philosophy and pragmatism and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that's been developed. You don't just, any more than, like if you went to fly to India, how, how long would it take for you to feel relatively comfortable bribing a public official? I'm going to guess never. Never would you feel comfortable doing that. It would be gross. It would be, you know, it doesn't just transfer. And... um that is, and and this is, it's not, again, it's not just a racial thing as well. I mean, Russia is is pretty bad that way because they had 70 years of communism and before that they had the czar and serfdom and so on. So they haven't developed. Now, even though it's a relatively high IQ, although how much of the IQ is retained after pickling your brain in vodka for decade after decade, but <laughs> it's a relatively high IQ country, but it doesn't have the same kind of respect for rules that have developed out of the common law systems in the West. Don't even get me started on Africa. That's a whole other topic. But um, yeah, so the Russians come over and say, well, it's a high IQ country. Sure, but it's not a country that has developed a lot of respect for social rules. How could they have? I mean, they had czarism and then they had communism and then they had, you know, the oligarchism, oligarchism that is going on at the moment, right? The oligarchs running the crony capitalism and all of that. How could they? I mean, the institutions aren't worthy of respect. How could they have developed that respect? Which is why uh, so many Russian immigrants are involved, particularly in fraud cases. It's actually even worse in a way because they're smarter and therefore they get more involved in fraud than street crime, which is more a subtle decay of things. Uh, sorry, uh, you were about to say something earlier. Okay, so... So the... So the or underlying question is this. Okay, so I'm very self-critical. I've I been this way for quite a while. And I always like to ask myself, what would the identifiers be if I'm wrong? So I'm wrong about a, what? Uh, about, about, about the situation where I'm a racist, I'm an alt-right, I'm a, a xenophobic. Oh, right, right. And uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, he really, what ticked him off was the second travel ban. And he said to me, he said, now people can't come from Syria. And I said, for good, Jesus, they, they have a home. It's called Syria. Well, or they have, you know, ridiculous numbers of other Muslim countries that they can go to. Yes, well, yes, that, that are much closer. That's monoculture. If you're a Muslim and you want a monoculture country to go to, which is an Islamic country, you have many, many countries to choose from. Absolutely. What options do people in the West have? Yes, a absolutely. Well, I, I honestly think we have none. Maybe Switzerland. <laughs> Maybe so, Iceland. Yay! We get <laughs> the iceberg! Woohoo! <laughs> well, I've never been happier. <laughs> 
Sure, we built civilization, but let's re- let's let's retreat to the glacier because that sounds fair. Well, actually, honestly, that that seems to be what's going to happen. But I digress for a moment. Uh, so, and he he said, well, what if Microsoft wants to hire a Syrian programmer? And you know, he's a great programmer. He lives in Syria. Now he can't come here. <laughs> And my immediate Good. answer was, why the hell aren't we hiring an American programmer? <laughs> yeah. And he hung up on me. Right. He, he, he hung up on me. So tell me, uh, now, without mocking him. Uh, <laughs> oh, not, come not, on. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, fine. No, not to, be, not to be nice to him, but to try as best you can to, to really understand that mindset. Because I'm really doubting myself. Have I become the, the the country rube that everyone in New York and Chicago thinks that all of the white people are down here? Well, the fact that he hung up on you is one indication that you're right. You know, if, if when my daughter was younger, if she said two and two make five, I didn't just stalk out of the room because I couldn't answer her. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's it. I'm leaving. I have no other recourse because we don't have five grapes I can point out the facts with, right? But no, listen, I mean, bring someone in from Syria. Bring someone in from Syria versus hiring somebody from within America. Well, what if the person from Syria, do they speak English? Okay, let's say they don't speak English, they speak Arabic or whatever. Okay, so that's a challenge. The person from Syria, if they're going to integrate, is going to have to learn English. English. Now, I'm going to assume that learning English for somebody from Syria is about as challenging as learning Arabic for somebody from New York, right? In other words, they don't even use the same letters. Yes. You know, like I, I remember high, going... High difficult. Yeah, like yeah, it's really Spanish. difficult. If you don't even speak... Learning learning German is, is, is bad enough. Dirty das, really, for every different thing. The 4,000 irregular verbs in Portuguese, according to Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? So, but at least it's the same. At least I can read the words for the most part, you know, and I guess they get that heavy metal umlaut that they use from time to time. But, you know, I remember going from Morocco to China, I went for, to Morocco for Y2K. Uh, I wanted to do something exotic and fun, and it was an interesting trip. And I went straight from there to a business trip to China. So I went from, like, Arabic to Mandarin. I had, like, a month. I couldn't read a damn thing. <laughs> I had no idea what's going on. And um, and I really, really got beaten at ping pong, which is not easy. I'm a good ping pong player. But um, uh, it's tough. So so how on earth could it be efficient? The guy's got to fly over. He's, I mean, got to be interviewed. He's got to fly over. He's got to learn the language. He's got to learn the culture. He's got to learn how things work. He's got to, right? I mean, that's complicated. I mean, just imagine me going to Syria or someplace where they speak mostly Arabic and trying to rent a room. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. How could that possibly be efficient? How could that possibly be efficient? And people say, well, you know, in the absence of a big giant state with borders and so on, it's the welfare state. It's all this H-1B stuff. It's all of these subsidies that make it work. Cross-cultural stuff is ridiculously inefficient, economically speaking. Imagine you're trying to build a house. you got six guys. They all speak different languages. How on earth are you going to get it done? You'll have to hire more interpreters and deal with more mistranslations than you actually have workers. It's not going to work. 
So cross-cultural stuff needs massive amounts of government subsidies to even be remotely economically efficient. This is why the welfare state and multiculturalism have to go hand in hand. And corporate welfare and H-1B visas and all this other bullshit. They all have to go hand in hand. Obamacare all has to go hand in hand with multiculturalism because multiculturalism is a huge net loss in society. And I don't mean multiculturalism like, well, there's a little Italy and then there's a little Greece and then, you know, over the generations, everyone... Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, real cross-culture multiculturalism. It doesn't work economically, which is why it can't happen until you get massive government subsidies. There's, it's no accident, Bob, why the welfare state coincided with the 1965 Immigration Act sponsored by Senator Edward Kennedy that the welfare state and a dedication to bringing in third world immigrants into America had to occur at the same time. Because you could open the floodgates wide to third world immigration if there's no welfare state. It won't work. It won't happen. Robert Putnam has talked about this. People want neighborhoods with like-minded people around like-minded people around. And fundamentally, it has nothing to do with race. I think we've talked about this before. If you moved in next door to me, fantastic. You know, if, if some Russian oligarchical weirdo moved in next to me, he could be as white as the sun, I still would rather you be there because <laughs> we'd have so much more in common, right? And so it is ridiculously inefficient. Robert Putnam has talked about this many, many times, how inefficient and how community-destroying multiculturalism is. Why don't kids go and play outside anymore? Because nobody knows who's out there. Nobody knows whose values are there. Nobody know. Like if you were in Little Italy and, and your kids went out to play, everyone's got the same religion. Everyone's got the same values. They can all discipline each other's kids. Nobody's going to get offended. Nobody's going to get thought of as racist. It's too complicated. Going over to some Somali's house and trying to figure out how it all works. You know, oh God, forget it. I'll just stay home, something that's nice on TV. This is why people cocoon. It's so destructive to society that unless you are subsidizing it like crazy, it's never, ever going to work in any voluntary way. Just for those who don't know, right? Well, I'd, I'd like to say something about that particular thing about people not going outside. So I think it was Richard Spencer who talked, well, maybe not him, but someone like him who said that, People are basically, young people are basically in two camps, born before 1980 and born after 1980. And the ones born before 1980 know what it means to go outside and play. And the ones after, obviously the year could be moved slightly based on region. But because I'm a very old millennial or a super duper young, whatever the hell, Generation Xer, um, I remember a time where seeing a person in a burqa would have freaked everybody out where everybody in the mall, in the restaurant would have gone, what the hell is that? <laughs> and so not only can we, do we not do that now, but we can't do that now. We, we are immediately ousted by everyone with a voice. And when I say with a voice, I mean, Hollywood, I mean, not really the government right now <laughs> for the last <laughs> more than eight years it was. 
And so and so when I see all of these things, I talk about it. And when I talk about it, I'm quote unquote racist. And what do you think? Of, what do you think you know, about well, that particular? No, I mean, sorry. what's what's the upside? What's the benefit to the local population? I mean, I understand the benefit to the politicians. I understand to the benefit from the to the people from the third world. I understand all of those benefits, of course. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening. What's the benefit to the local population? I mean, it's the old question: what What's wrong with having babies? Well, you know, we, we just have this underpopulation. We need all this worker Bullshit. Bullshit. What's wrong with just having babies? I'm not talking about white people. Eh, just people, have some babies. You know, people who've been sort of in the West for generations. Have some sex. Well, have well some I do want to... I want to go back to my five, <laughs> my five-point immigration plan, and I want to ask you, what is too far? Okay, so immediate expulsion of illegal immigrants. That's yes. not an immigration plan. That's the law. You know <laughs> okay. what I mean? Like, I mean, if you, you say, well, I need this big plan to deal with all these people who are setting up their tents on my front lawn. It's like, no, it's called property rights. That's trespassing. We already have a solution for that. It's called the law. So I don't think okay. that's – and a birthright citizenship. Birthright citizenship is um, – not in the Constitution, and America is one of the very few countries in the world which even considered this kind of thing. It was just jammed in there by a Supreme Court judge in a footnote. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You don't get to keep the fruits of a crime. You don't. You know, like if, 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 if someone robs a bank and then gives the money to his friend, his friend has to give the money back, right? You understand? You don't get to keep the fruits of a crime. So if you're in a country illegally and you have a child, the idea that that child gets citizenship is mad. It's completely rewarding people for committing crimes. Hey, it'd be great. I'm going to go pay you $50,000 to steal a car. Well, yeah, there'll be a few people who won't do it, but there'll be a whole lot of people who will. And so giving people citizenship in America, which is one of the great prizes and treasures in the world for committing an illegal action, is completely mental. Well, uh, uh, to to go to give you a real-world scenario here. It's not even the law. I want to I want to know if this is assholey or not. So there's <laughs> so whenever I see a pregnant immigrant now, I see <laughs> this is going to sound so bad. I don't get to say this. I see a thief. I see someone stealing citizenship or stealing benefits from the con- from the country. That's what I see now. And so in our office, they're full of Indians, and they went around and they asked everyone to give ten dollars to a one for a baby shower, and she's pregnant and. And in my mind, I, I'm thinking she needs to go back to India and have that baby. She need, she, she's clearly doing something here. And I didn't give the money to them. And I think they knew. <laughs> I think I, they, they didn't know exactly how I felt, but I think they knew. Now, please tell me what level of asshole, assholery is that? <laughs> well, no, let, let me look. You, you and I, Bob, would both like to live in a world where we could be genuinely happy for somebody else having a baby. I'd I'd like to live in that world. But in order for me to live in that world, one or two things needs to happen. Either groups need to start acting the same in aggregate, right? Or I need to stop being forced to pay for other people's babies. Right? So, So if, like, let me ask you this. If it was a Japanese woman who was pregnant, how would you feel? 
Well, <laughs> oh God, that's bad answer. I would feel less bad because they don't, they don't, they're not here in mass stealing citizenship. Well, no, and also uh, people from Japan have, you know, they're called the the model immigrants, right? The the perfect immigrants, so to speak. They they have the lowest crime rates. Uh, they have uh, the lowest welfare usage. They have the highest incomes. The the most uh, um, wealth aggregation. They create a huge amount of. Jo- I mean, they're a net positive. Well, not only that, but they're a particular outlier in Asia. They they are basically a Western country in Asia. They, I don't I don't I don't really understand it very well. Uh, it's just it, they're just very high IQ. Okay. Right. I mean, they're hundred and three, hundred and four, hundred and five IQ on average, and I assume that the people who come to the West are uh, even higher. So, so no, nobody's sitting there saying, I mean, where are the, all the people? Like, and, and Coulter's book, Adios America, has Spanish in the title, not Japanese, right? <laughs> because absolutely. until groups start acting the same, don't judge people negatively for judging them accurately. Did you know what I mean? Yes, but you do, you do see the clear... Ah, not the clear. If you were very nearsighted, or you didn't see deep at all, you you can you can see that um, that sounds like a problem immediately, right? What do you mean? I mean political correctness. Well, yeah, but political correctness has this bizarre environmentalist belief that everyone is exactly the same, and therefore perceiving any differences between groups is discriminatory. But the reality is, there are differences between groups. I've gone over them. Most people don't have the facts. And then you enter into this weird, solipsistic universe where people say, yes, there are differences between groups, but that's only because people perceive those differences between groups. And it's like, what? And I point them to an NBA game. Every time, <laughs> yeah. Or you know, look at look at the uh, the hundred meter race. Uh, you know, n- not not a whole lot of pygmies and white people <laughs> in there, okay, right? So it's I all these guys to, from like four square something. miles in Kenya. I have to say something about that in particular because my friend, we argued about that, and he truly believes to his core that everyone is the same. And so I sent him an email and it took me a while to do this. And I sent a picture of every person who won the hundred meter dash in the last, well, the last 20 and all of them are not, not only there are 95% of them black, there's one white, but the year he won was the year everyone boycotted the Olympics because of the South. (laughs) That's pretty funny. And, And not only did he, did he win, but he won by the slowest time of all of those people. And, he got caught using drugs. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, I asked, please explain this. If everyone's the same, please explain this to me. But anyway. Well, and, and uh, nobody's sitting there saying, well, you know, the problem is we just don't have enough Japanese men in the 100-meter dash. So we need affirmative action to put them halfway up the field so that they can compete. It, well, exactly. Because exactly. it's not anti-white, right? I mean. Yeah. All right. So back to, yes, that's right. That's right. Because the only... The only um, the only race that isn't multiculturalism is or, or is multicultural is white. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is too, if people wanted multiculturalism, then they should want countries to remain the same, because if countries all blend together, you don't have multiculturalism anymore. 
Well, that's a that's an interesting way to look at it. However, if they import them all here and the people don't blend together, you do have multiculturalism, but we call that war or conflict. Well, and, you know, given the birth rates among different groups, um, it's it's not a stable multiculturalism. <laughs> it's not going to it's going to end up a monoculture one way or the other. All right, well, let's wrap up this. All right, uh, so uh, revocation of, so yeah, birthright citizenship is not the law. It's just something that's kind of become something that's that's accepted. And uh, yeah, but birthright citizenship to me makes no sense. Uh, no, no sense at all. Um, revocation of citizenship to those born to illegal parents? That's a challenge. I mean, I, I understand the sentiment. Um, you know, Trump can't even put travel bans on countries that can't even vet people coming into America from a list developed by Obama. <laughs> like, you understand, I mean, you could basically, so you could put a houseplant on that plane and, and claim it's from Scotland and Trump couldn't stop the houseplant from coming into America. It almost feels that way, right? <laughs> so Look, I, I have a centipede. He's an American. <laughs> okay, fine. Because I, I, I wrote the word America on a piece of toilet paper and crayon. So, well, I mean, I'm the idea that he can't even get that travel ban, the idea of the revocation of citizenship to those born to illegal parents, that's tough. You know, that smacks of retroactive laws. That's like, that is a, that is a big, uh, that is a big well, challenge. Well, I have, a, I have a challenge for you here. Um, I think that if we don't do that, then all of those children are going to murder us in the vote in eight years, 16, 12 years, 16 years. Well, at least what you could do is bring the sort of chain migration thing. You could look at that. You know, the chain migration where, like, so the anchor baby then starts bringing in more and more relatives and sponsors more and more relatives. That becomes a challenge, right? Like, it was just like an hour ago, uh, Trump, Trump's new executive order was blocked because, you know, the, the president has complete control over immigration unless judges say otherwise. So, so revocation of citizenship to those born to illegal parents, um, that's, that's a challenge. I understand the idea. And certainly, since it was never law, you could maybe make the case that... Um, it was mistakenly applied or, you know what, if the bank made, to, to take a ridiculous extreme, um, then if the bank mistakenly puts $1,000 in my account, a month later they can take it back, right? So if it was sort of mistakenly done, right, if birthright citizenship is invalid, then children of illegals would not be uh, citizens. Could you do this if they already have citizenship? You could say, well, it was a mistake. And, and I mean, that would be that would be a challenge. And we're just talking about the practicalities, the ethics of it, maybe a whole other thing. Change of immigration to a Japanese system, merit-based immigration and strict work visa rules. But here's my question. And I, I mean, it's, it's a challenging question, and I'm, I'm sort of open to lots. Why, why immigration at all? Why? So that... Um, that's a good question. I mean, why? I mean, why? why? We, is, we, what's, what's, what's the big, I mean, I, what's the big benefit? Well, that's, that is actually, I, I, that is an unexpected challenge. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's, it's been stopped before. Yeah, and, and when it was stopped, America went through a period of extraordinary economic growth. It, it, for sure, if you get rid of immigration or you stop immigration or you pause immigration or whatever it is, it's going to drive up massive demand for domestic workers thus lifting people out of welfare, right? Because it's not just the illegal immigrants who take jobs away. What they do is they lower the wages to the point where welfare becomes an attractive option. If wages rise, welfare becomes a less attractive option, so you get people off welfare onto work, which means you can actually start to deal with the deficit and, and maybe even the debt. Like, I mean, 
it's it's a radical question, and I know lots of people. You can Ann Coulter's asked it, and but why immigration at all? What's wrong with having babies? Yeah, well, that is I I I I, I can't answer that challenge. Obviously, that's a that's a valid that's a very valid question. Um, we just we have we have what I think is our is our PR. There's a PR department of the United States that is convinced, I think, a vast majority of the country that this country does certain things, that that the inscription upon the Statue of Liberty is simply the law of the country. Yeah, yeah, because I write a poem and suddenly it becomes the law, right? Exactly. So, so no, I, I guess we're... we're but, we're you, know, you know, I, hotels want to take in guests until they're full. Parking lots want to take in cars, but every now and then I'm driving to a concert and it's, sorry, lot full. Well, I don't get to call up the guy and say, hey, man, your whole point of being a parking lot is you got to take cars. That's the whole business model. And he's like, well, yeah, unless we're full, in which case we don't have that business model called put in more cars than we have. If I've got 20 rooms in my hotel and they're all full, I put up the full sign outside. Well, the whole point is you got to take people. No, I'm full. Unless you're going to start doubling up with people, which I don't really want to do because that's kind of creepy and weird. And I could be liable for a bunch of stuff. Yeah, okay. But we're talking about the 19th century when America was pretty damn empty. Uh, so the last one. So the, the only challenge you've given me is that I haven't gone far enough. <laughs> well, that's what and philosophy does in general. <laughs> You, you think you're being risky? No, no. You ain't seen nothing yet. So finally, the last one. Uh, and this is a particular one. I, I just thought about this recently after reading. I, I wrote, uh, I write long papers to my family about, about different way to see the world. Because when I was 18, 17, 16, I didn't, I didn't have the internet, really. And I didn't have any conservative ideas ever, ever broadcast to me. Never. And so I feel like it is my duty to at least give that information to the younger people in my, you know, my the next generation in my family or the people around my generation. I'm in kind of an odd age. I'm younger than most of my first cousins and slightly older than all the second cousins. So I broadcast things like this and I, you know, I do a bunch of research and then I read the Oath of Allegiance, the immigration oath. I'm sure you know about it full well. And I think that there are too many people in this country who don't understand what allegiance even is. So that's why that last one exists. Mandatory Oath of Allegiance to receive right to vote and government benefits. But, uh, and would that be something like if you break it, then you lose your residency or what? I mean, what, is it, what does the oath of allegiance mean? I mean, live long and prosper? Okay, I said that. So what, does that mean in my Star Trek now? <laughs> well, I, 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 maybe it's more of a symbolic thing, but it's not to, to receive citizenship because obviously if a person, if George Washington's great, 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 great grandson doesn't do it. We can't, obviously, where, where can we kick them out? Where can you send them? But to receive 
you know, the full benefits of a U.S. citizen, including the right to vote. And I think about this because all of the people I see destroying the American flag and beating the shit out of conservatives, and these people are voting. I mean, these people are just anarchists. So anyway, so what do you think? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't be high on my list. You know, like I was reading about how like almost three quarters of Canadians want some test of, of values for immigration. So what? People lie. Let's <laughs> people let's lie. say that let's say there was an ideology around the world that said it was fine to lie to people who aren't part of your ideology. Let's just say theoretically, there was an ideology <laughs> around that said, you know, if if you're not part of our ideology, we don't actually have to tell the truth to you. Then such oaths become meaningless because even the people who believe in that ideology, anyway, you understand how uh, yes, how that yes. works. So well, I don't know, was, like. Uh, people can say, well, I'm really, you know, keen on immigration. That's, I mean, that's that's a perspective and I, I sort of understand it. And I don't mean to get all race relations on you, Bob, but, but the reality is if you're keen on immigration from the third world, you're being a total asshole to the black community. And, and black community leaders have said exactly that. They are cheering restrictions on immigration because they know what it's going to do to wages. They know what it's going to do for unskilled labor, and they know that it's going to start lifting black people out of poverty and into the middle class. So that's fine. Oh, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be bigoted. It's like, okay, fine, fine. But you're screwing the black community in America, and you're screwing the ambitious Hispanic community in America. Just, Just be aware of that. Now, I personally think the black community in America, I don't think it's a stretch to say, they had a bit of a sucky deal from the government for quite a long time. Quite a long time indeed. I would really like the poor communities, you know, black, white, who I would the one Asian guy. Like I would really like the poor communities in America to have a bit of a better shot than they've had in the past. Certainly for the past, like since 1965, the past, you know, 52 years. The one nice, the one Asian guy. You know, I've said the same thing. No, but, but, okay, so you want these immigrants, but you understand you're piling more shit on the black community. You're, you're undercutting the opportunities for the black community to rise up and do better. Absolutely. Which, which causes Absolutely. more welfare, more single motherhood, more family decay, more drugs, more criminality, more problems. Why Absolutely. the fuck does someone in Syria who wants to be a programmer, matter more than a black community in Atlanta or Detroit or Baltimore or Ferguson. Don't they matter too? Shouldn't we take a little bit more care of them than everyone on the planet who wants a shot at a dream that they could work to recreate in their own country if they wanted? America's not made a monopoly on being a republic. They're not going to sue you if you become a republic or have a free market. Or privatize things? Go for it. Everyone would be thrilled. But why the fuck does everyone in the world matter? Except for the poor in your own goddamn country. Exactly. And and I like to say it like this. The poor in the country whose family have died for the country, whose family have built the country and paid taxes, not to just hand the country over to insert random country's name here. Yeah. Maybe, well, you know, maybe maybe I'll be a little more simple. Like, if India gets rid of the caste system, <laughs> you know, then maybe we could uh, look into that. But no, I, um, you know, the, the poor people in, in the West, the poor people who are here um, in, in America, in Canada, in Europe, they need some traction. 
they need an escalator that's going to get them out of the hole that they're in. Welfare is keeping them in that hole. Lack of job opportunities is keeping them in that hole. And the more and more and more and more and more people who come pouring into a country who are taking from the public purse, who are driving down wages and driving up taxes. Well, I, I must say one more thing. Yeah. And then uh, this will just be it. I don't know if you know this, but I feel a sense of entitlement from immigrants, from people who are not either not yet citizens or on their way to becoming citizens. They feel like they are entitled to come to the United States. One person said to me after the travel ban, this a woman from she's Pakistani. She said, why did the United States make all these people come? if they're just going to send them home. <laughs> and I looked at and, her. And that's with, the kind of self-ownership and self-responsibility we're looking for in citizens <laughs> in the West. That kind of moral integrity, that kind of locus of control being right in there in your heart. Well, you know, we were just forced, forced and flown over, bundled up in burlap sacks and flown over. <laughs> oh, I've never felt warmer. So, well, thanks a lot, buddy. Um, <laughs> I... I I want a little pushback from from this because I I'm getting too much. Uh, no, you just to- just 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 hit. I mean, I really think hit them with the poor and and the black community and so on. It's like, why why are you so negative towards the black community? Why are you why are you supporting policies that hit the hardest? Yeah, the poorest. That, they hit the good. poorest that's- the hardest. That's 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 actually where I you're right. I, and, Haven't and the brothers kind of and sisters in- suffered enough? Seriously, <laughs> seriously, from from slavery to to Jim Crow to the welfare state to wages being driven down by illegal immigrants, can we can we cut some poor people a fucking break? Yes, absolutely. That's the Ben Shapiro tactic. Use their tactics of emotion against them. But it's not that's- just emotion; it's real. Yeah. God, can you imagine no, no. if 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 wages go up for the poorest among us and blacks and, and others start to get off welfare into jobs, which means that, that family life becomes much more valuable, which means that, that marriage – I mean, as I've talked about before, black marriage integrity was greater than whites in the 1920s and 1930s during the Great Depression, for God's sakes. Don't tell me about some poverty and bullshit like that. It's about lack of opportunity. Imagine what the ghettos could turn into. If there was this rising tide of wages because immigration from third world countries had been cut off, imagine if taxes, corporate taxes could go down because it's current and everyone's taxes could go down so they could buy shit in their country and create jobs. So you have a cutoff in endless supply of people driving down wages at the same time as you have a stimulation in demand because you don't have to pay for all of the social programs and welfare benefits and healthcare being consumed by these immigrants. That's a one-two punch that is going to lift people out of poverty. Christ almighty, in India, 50,000 people a month are going from poverty into the middle class. 50,000 people a month. It could be even better in America. And immigration can be restarted when we can rein in the social programs. But right now... It's like paying people to be your friend. They're not there for you. They're there for your money. Well, thank you for your time. I will. I, I did get something out of this. I'll be a little more strategic in the conversation. I'll stop, I'll stop referring to them as dregs and illegal invaders. 
and <laughs> and focus on the actual effects to Americans more. Yeah. No, I mean, um, th- it shows you how the Democrats haven't changed at all. The Democrats were the most racist party around and democratic policies since the 1950s. Both welfare plus illegal, plus sorry, both welfare plus third world immigration have virtually destroyed the black community in many circumstances, and it's time to stop. I mean, they need they need some help, and they need some wages, and they need some better opportunities, and uh, I'm all for that. So I think that's important. All right, thanks again for your time. Uh, I need to call you back about your UPB. That's. Mm, that's going to be fun. Yeah, I'd love to chat about it. So thanks, uh, as always, Bob, a great conversation. Let's move on. Absolutely. Good day. All right, up next we have Troy. Troy wrote in and said, what is the morality of breaking commitments or contracts? When is it moral slash ethical to break a commitment or contract? Is it right to leave the military early and pursue a career I have a true desire to do? As a young man, would this be very detrimental to do? Should I stay in for the remainder of my contract and then pursue it or take the leap of faith? That's from Troy. Hi, Troy. How you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm well. Let me, let me sort of start off with a general argument and then we can uh, dip into to more details if you like. All right. The general argument is that breaking a contract is not a moral question. It's not, it's not a good evil question. However, breaking a contract without paying the penalties which you've agreed to in breaking the contract, that becomes more of a moral issue, right? So, you know, you, you sign up with a cell phone company, you sign up for some two-year plan, and what they do is they bundle in the price of your cell phone, often, you know, with these two-year plans or whatever, right? And then what you do is, let's say that you want to keep the cell phone, and you don't want to pay for it. Right, so let's say your cell phone costs 500 bucks and they roll it into the plan and you're supposed to pay it off over two years. Now, after a year, you decide you want to cancel, but you've only paid off 250 bucks of the cell phone. If you want to keep the cell phone, you owe them 250 bucks. So canceling the contract, it's fine. It's not a moral issue. But if you, um, if you want to break the contract and not pay the penalties... Like you sign, like I used to sign a lease. When I was in college, I used to have this problem. Every summer, I'd want to come back home to make money, but I'd have signed a twelve-year, uh, sorry, twelve-month lease, so I'd have to find someone to sublet whatever place I had over the summer or whatever. So, if I sign a twelve-month lease and I want to leave after six months, generally the penalty is three months, right? So you can break the contract and you pay the penalty. Now, if you've signed a contract and you um, you break the contract and you don't want to pay the penalty that you've agreed to, then it sort of becomes a moral issue if that makes sense. Um, When it comes to something like a marriage contract, if you make a vow, if you make a verbal vow, a commitment, you know, I'm I'm not going to have affairs and and so on, right? I'm going to be with you in sickness and health and so on. That's very important. And that used to be reflected in the law. That used to be reflected in the law, but it's not anymore because responsibility is kind of out the window. There are moral issues when it comes to that. But when it comes to breaking a contract that you've signed with an entity, an organization, and so on. Breaking the contract is perfectly valid, but you got to pay the penalties. Uh, does that make sense? It does. Um, do you mind giving me some examples of the penalties pertaining to my situation? So you're in the military, right? Yes, sir. Now, I don't know exactly what the penalties are 
related to your situation. I certainly have talked to, and, and some years ago now, uh, I did a show. Uh, maybe, Mike, if you could look it up. But I did a show with people who help soldiers get out of the military if they don't want to be in there anymore, like if they really disagree fundamentally with what the military is doing or what the deployment is or the ethics behind the situation or whatever it is. And so there are ways of getting out of your contract with the military that are within the rules of the military, not just going AWOL and, you know, moving to Timbuktu or something like that, which is against the law and against the rules, which I'm not advocating, of course. But there are ways to um, get yourself out of the military that are within the rules of the military. And uh, there's lots of people who have uh, talked about that. There are organizations that can can help you. I don't know if, have you read sort of what you signed in the military uh, and what your options are? In terms of getting out? Yeah. Um, well, you already mentioned AWOL. I'm, by, no, by, by any means, I'm not going to do anything like that. Right, right. But I could fail my PT test. And that would grant me either a general or honorable discharge. Oh, you mean like um, if you gained weight or didn't exercise or whatever it was, right? Yes. Um, another way is, you know, something pertaining to some medical disability. Um, for instance, let's say that I joined the military and I developed depression or, you know, I've got to mention I had depression or some sort of uh, mental illness before, you know, joining if they were to find out or, you know, it was interfering with my work so, you know, severely, they would probably have to, you know, kick me out. Granted, they'll try to find different ways to, you know, keep me in, you know, assign me to a military uh, psychiatrist or counselor. And, you know, they'll probably, like, you know, suck it up and just keep going. But uh, that's another way. It doesn't have to be exactly mental. It could be, you know, like uh, some, a disease or some sort of medical condition that would uh, render honorable or general. Yes, but th- these things have to be real, right? I mean, you can't fake them. Exactly. Right, right. So, I mean, those are obviously some options. But um, when it comes to the ethics, um, you know, you're you're a young man and you signed a contract. And if there's ways to get out of the contract, if you've changed your mind that are within the bounds of the contract, I think that's perfectly fine. You know, we're all allowed to change our minds, right? I mean, we're all allowed to disagree. Uh, I've got a show called Courage to Resist. Uh, I interviewed Jeff Patterson, P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N. It's show 1543, back in the uh, later Middle Ages uh, of the show's timeline. Uh, I think now we're in the Clone Wars. I'm not sure. Anyway, but uh, yeah, you Courage to Resist, the Freedom Aid Radio interview with Jeff Patterson, P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N. This is some years ago, but uh, you can look that up. Uh, and they are an organization, I think he represents an organization that can help people get out of um, military contracts in, in you know, legal and, and honorable ways but yeah listen you're allowed you're allowed to change your mind and you know it's not like i've heard tales you know i've heard i haven't verified any of this but i've heard stories uh, over the years both publicly and privately about you know what i was promised in the recruiting station versus what i actually got uh in in the army um it's not always the most strictest up and up and honest transaction to get you in the military according to some people i've talked to but um you know so so there is that sort of aspect of things as well. But yeah, you're a young man, you're allowed to change your mind. And if there are legal procedures by which you can get out of a contract that you've signed, uh, it's perfectly valid to do so, in my opinion. Huh. Interesting. Um, you said that 
I'm just make sure like I, I'm I'm not par- well. I'm probably I'm going to paraphrase, but um, you said you knew people who received false information when they went to the recruiting office. That, well, it was it was more like you know here here's all the things that you can do and here's all the ways it can work out and so on and you know when they were finally got to the paperwork uh, if they went over it in great detail it didn't match exactly right that was sort of what. Uh, what is what is going on uh, and you know often in ways that couldn't particularly be verified so that's something to uh to to remember i see well I, that was kind of my experience but it, well what uh, what changed between what you were offered and what you got well at, at the time i was 17 i like just to give you some context i do not come from a very wealthy background at all um i do not i was not fortunate um, you know, financially uh, at all. So at the time, I kind of made a decision out of, honestly, fear and ignorance. Hmm. Um, ignorance that, you know, I was 17 at the time. I graduated high school when I was 17. And, you know, I, you know, I wasn't sure what to do. You know, people, you got people telling you all these different things as a young person. You know, uh, go to college, do this, do that. Never really focusing on what the actual person wants to do. So I kind of made a decision out of ignorance, not knowing better, and fear of, you know, you know, what do I do? How do I make money? Um, I don't want to spill the, the most famous one. I don't want to disappoint my parents. But what, in terms of what changed, I think just being real with myself, like being honest with myself. Personally, I, there's nothing really wrong with the military. If people, you know, um, I, I always say the people who joined straight out of high school and they found something that they liked, you know, and has all these benefits along with the job, amen to them. Like, that, that's fantastic. I'm I'm really happy for them because they they won, you know. But I, I feel as if like for me this just isn't my path, and that you know, my skills and interests lie elsewhere. Again, I can look at the situation objectively and be like, there there really is nothing, quote unquote, wrong with with the military. But in terms of my path and what I want to do, I don't think it's necessarily for me, and I don't want to waste essentially most of my twenties. Uh, doing something I'm not really that interested interested in, getting along with people I don't necessarily like, and doing something I'm you know I'm going to be subpar at as opposed to the best. So, right, right, right. Yeah, a courage to resist dot org. Um, that's the uh, that's the group that uh, you can check out. And I don't know anything fundamentally about what they do other than the interview, but it's worth having a look. But um, if you've entered into something, particularly when you were 17 if you've entered into something you've you've kind of gone through to the other side and and you're looking now at your experience rather than what you were thinking of that is um yeah i mean that that's to me perfectly uh, fair and and perfectly valid i don't know how it would really be ethically very solid to say well you you know you made a choice when you were 17 for the next 10 years of your life you know uh, after you've been propagandized a lot about the military and and uh, you know maybe it was talked up a little more than it turned out to be but um it is uh it is perfectly valid to to change your mind and to find a way uh, to remedy um a decision that you've made that you have uh, decided you don't want to support anymore. That's that's part of life. I mean, I've certainly changed my mind, you know, many years older than you, and I've changed my mind many times uh, over the years as, you know, more and better information comes my way. So, yeah, I would I would fully support you exploring that, um, and it's perfectly a moral thing to do, in my opinion. That's actually really good to know. I was I was not sure because, you know, 
I'm in the military, like you said, prop, I'm constantly being, you know, bombarded with, you know, this is good, this is what you want, you know, being fed stuff that aren't necessarily my ideas. It could be really refreshing like, to hear that. Um, I, I guess that did, you know, answer my question, and, you know, we I could definitely check out the things that you reference, but I do want to, like, uh, branch off and, like, have another question answered in terms of, like, let's say I do it, and I, you know, and I, and I leave. Um... Essentially, my plan is to leave and get a job as a film PA, hmm. um, which is very strange because my job, I'm, I work in military intelligence, and I don't get paid that much, but I guess my concern is like when, once I do it, like how will I be able to uh, sufficiently support myself? Granted, there are different avenues, and I'm more knowledgeable about things you know, obviously when I was, when I was 17, but in terms of like taking that leap of faith, it's like, Hmm, you know, could that support me? Will I be able to, you know, pay the bills, pay for, you know, internet, uh, food and basic, you know, uh, you know, essentially basic needs or, you know, cause to be frank, like my savings, it'll probably last me, you know, it, with the place I want to get probably like two months. Um, at the most, if not, if not, maybe, maybe, maybe three, but, you know, taking a leap of faith and getting a job as a PA, you know, from NSA employee to <laughs> something like that. Uh, I don't know, like, would that be a wise thing to do? I, um, what do you think your living expense, what, what could you crush your living expenses down to, do you think? Um, I don't need, I don't need much. I'm not a materialistic person. I just need, you know, food, water, internet, of course, <laughs> and, um, you know, a place to live. Yeah, I mean, you can double up, right? You can you can get a room in a house. I mean, I've done all these kinds of things <laughs> when I was, you know, in school and, and uh, early on in my career when I was uh, broke. So, I mean, I rented one room in a house for like $270 a month, like utilities and, and everything uh, all, all included. And um, so you can crush down your living expenses considerably, um, but a production assistant, if that's the PA that you're talking about, I mean, it should be a paid position, and um, you can get uh, a paid position. It probably won't pay that much, but, you know, when you're young and don't have a family to support or anything like that, and um, I'm going to assume you don't have any expensive debilitating habits or anything like that, so um, you can uh, live low to the ground, keep your expenses low in order to follow your dream. And um, you can, of course, start looking for work uh, if you're on the track to, to leave, right? You can start looking for work uh, ahead of time and uh, at least get yourself some, uh, some interviews. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, you should be able to get at least some sort of position relatively uh, quickly. Again, I'm not a big, I'm not very knowledgeable about the film industry. I've worked in it sort of very peripherally uh, when I was younger, but um, there are production assistants who need it all the time. And, uh, you know, if you've got, um, uh, you know, if, if you've worked in, in military intelligence, I'm going to assume that people think you're a smart guy, which you sound to be. So um, I'm sure you'd be a good asset that people would be able to snatch up pretty quickly. I'm sorry. Like I, I know I paused, but I guess it's really powerful, like to hear it and like talk about it because I, I obviously I can't talk to any of my fellow peers about this because they'll be like, you know, either they might report me or they'll be like, you're crazy, you know, Stan. 
but you know to actually like hear this stuff you know talk about it it's, it's really helping well yeah, yeah let me let me make this offer to you as well um if if you're like close to getting a job and you need some money just you know give us a shout on this show i'll, I'll cover you for a month don't worry about it are you serious yeah Hey man, I know what it's I know what it's like to chase a dream. I was backed into a financial corner from time to time. I grew up dirt poor. I know I know what it's like. I mean, don't don't feel like, oh, I've got two months or I'm gonna end up living under a bridge, you know, just give us a shout. We'll we'll cover you for a month. Wow, that's I honestly don't know what to say. Obviously, thank you, but Oh yeah, no. Wow, listen, that's if you've if you've got a great future in the film industry, for God's sakes, I mean, yeah, just you know, we'll um, I'd be happy to help. Wow! Thank you. I, <laughs> you have to keep in mind, like I, I'm not used to this. I'm used to, um, well, things not really going my way. But you know, wow, that's that's no. Listen, it's wow. selfish for me too because if you're into this philosophy show, Troy, and and you end up in the film industry, good. We have someone working on the inside. You know, in in some of the most important, <laughs> you know, the politics is downstream from culture stuff. So you know, it's a selfish pleasure for me as well. If if you do well, if you like this show and you do well in the film industry, uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, that's that's good for for the world. That's good for what it is that I want to do. So yeah, you've got uh, we you know we've got you back. If if you're close and and you need some support, um, just just let us know. All right. Sure thing. Um, I, I feel as if like there's really nothing else to say, but I do want to because I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm the kind of, kind of person who likes to cover all bases, uh, best case, worst case, likely scenario. But let's just say you have a chance that you know I fail my PT test, right? Like I, I gain weight and I do it, and they are suspicious that I did it on purpose. Or, you know, they may give me trouble, they may keep me in, or may, you know, uh, face, you know, the consequences of my actions. Uh, my contract is for s- six years. And by the time I get out, I'll be around 27, because my birthday is like at the end of the year, so it's weird. But um, let's say, worst case, you know, like something like that does end up happening. Um, is that too, I, I don't know, is that too late? Am I like screwed? Why be like so conditioned and like lose my creativity for staying in, you know, for that long, essentially against my will. Well, I, you know, I I would say, I would say don't focus on that kind of disaster scenario at the moment, Troy. I mean, look at your options and, and talk to people who can help you and then figure that out. Um, you know, as far as, you know, you can do things that you don't like and still be creative. You know, I mean, I got my first job when I was 10 and worked a lot of sucky jobs and didn't have a fun job until I was in my late 20s or mid to late 20s. And so I was still creative and so on. So, And I'm not comparing, you know, like my jobs with, with being in the military, but um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't be creative and can't go out and have a positive impact on the world. But I wouldn't worry about that so much, like sort of one step at a time. Um, I think that's the uh, that's the key. You know, figure out what your legal options are for leaving, uh, and and work on that at the moment. But sort of mulling over the worst case scenarios. Trust me, I've wasted a few minutes of my life <laughs> thinking about worst case scenarios. It, it has never once been productive. All it does is mean you're less able to deal with whatever uh, comes up in your life more immediately. Okay, I, I would definitely do that. All right. Uh, let us know how it goes. Uh, um, very best of luck to you. And um, I hope that you get everything that you want in life. Uh, and uh, thanks for, for the call. I appreciate it. No, thank you. I Thank you for your time. All right. Take care, man. You too. Bye. All right. Up next, we have James. James wrote in and said, 
With the premise that God is readily accessible through prayer, it seems that that would be a good method for testing his existence. Have you had any experience with prayer, both before and after you went to university? If so, what was your interpretation slash analysis of the results? If not, would it be beneficial for an empiricist to make attempts at prayer or not? That's from James. Oh, hey, James. How you doing? Hey, Stefan. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, thank you. Um, it's a great. It's a great question. I um, the Christie Berg song called "The Last Time I Cried." I remember the last time I had a <laughs> uh, a thought about prayer. Would you like to hear about it? Sure. Um, would you like any clarity on, on my own question, or um, I mean, I I'm think I understand here. it. Uh, if if we need clarification as we go forward, I I can let you know. I remember the last time I thought about praying. I was. Um, 18 or so. And you know, it's, I mean, I was, I was raised Protestant. I was raised in the Protestant church and I was in the school choir and uh, I, um, all, all, all of those, all of those kinds of things. I went to church uh, twice a week when I was in boarding school and went to church uh, uh, off and on until I left uh, England at the age of uh, 11. And after that, not really, but um, I was in a tent and I was, in the woods, uh, during sort of my gold panning and prospecting days. And I heard, in the middle of the night, a snuffling by the side of my tent. And, man, I don't know if you've ever had this in your life. You know, if, if you're driving and you have, like, a near miss or something like that. I've had, like, two or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like... Like, your heart just... Like, you you... you you kind of you're startled, and then you sort of notice your fight or flight mechanism has kind of kicked in, and you you can feel the blood pulsing through your fingertips, and your heart is, you know, banging a gong like T Rex or whatever. And in this case, it was kind of different though, because it was not; it was just a, a snuffling around the outside of the tent. And so it wasn't like a like a near miss, or it's like it was something where it's just like I felt the fight or flight. I've never felt it that vividly in my life before. It just it rose out of nothing to the point where like I don't I could I could feel my pulse in my biceps, like I was that wired uh, because you know there are some pretty big ass bears up there, and well they can pretty much rip your head off if they want to, and you know I did all the right things, like I I, I hung the food up in the tree so I didn't have food and right you don't want the bear coming in and saying oh there's a, a piece of flesh meat in the way of my food I think I shall disassemble it so I can get to my food you know like you're the wrapper and the chips are inside <laughs> and I just I remember thinking oh lord above please don't let this be a bear and it was like a very visceral dear god above I'll believe if there's no bear, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, it, it is that, because it's helplessness, right? I mean, if there is a bear, I mean, I had a gun um, and knew how to use it, of course. And um, But, you know, it's dicey. It's dark, really dark. You know, if, if it's a, I don't know if you've spent time away from a city, but man alive, if it's cloudy and moonless, can't see a thing. Well, it's, it, there's no difference between your eyes being open and your eyes being closed, in which case, 
again, is not the most helpful thing <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Let me shoot the darkness and, and hope I hit something, right? Other than the noise might startle the bear or it might make it more aggressive. I don't know. And that was, I remember that very vividly. That was the last time where I was like, dear Jesus, God save me from the bear. <laughs> like, I remember that very, very vividly. And then, you know, here's the thing, you know, being raised as a Christian, being raised as a Protestant, I mean, I did, then I felt like a jerk. I felt like a real asshole. Like, oh, now you're all into Jesus. Oh, I get it. You're totally fine not being into Jesus and God until there's a bear. And then you're born again in a blood sweat of your own terror. <laughs> it's dark. There are monsters. Hey, God, have you been? Haven't chatted in a while. I wonder if you could save me from the bear. Like, I mean, that is a that is a douchey reason to be religious, but I had that moment, and I'll be honest about it right now. Well, thanks for your honesty. Um, that would be that would be some situation to, to start praying in, though. I did not sleep for days. <laughs> Let me tell you that until I, until I got back to something with walls, I was like, "Hey, what's that? What's that? What's that?" <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I have no idea how our ancestors got any sleep at all, but anyway. Yeah. Um, Did have a bear I mean, attack us once. Oh, you know what? I won't do that story now. You've got a better story. Uh, you got a better question. So I'll do that story another time. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm interested in that story, but um, I guess, I guess, kind of like what I was thinking is that um, you know, um, I'm a Baptist from Texas, the Bible Belt, and I've been. <gasps> That's the end to Bob's question. I'm sorry to interrupt. So Bob said earlier, has moving to Texas made me a dot, dot, dot? Now I know. Baptist. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I did enjoy y'all's conversation earlier. That was, um, that was good, and I could comment a lot on immigration, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave that for an – I digress. Okay, yeah, well, feel free to call back in about that. But uh, anyway, so sorry, go on. Um, so, so I am religious, and, um, and when in college I, I did have, you know, Many options, many times when I was defending, um, you know, my views with, um, you know, atheists, agnostics, um, hedonists, what, what have you, and I, I guess like I always found that, um, you know, we would just go back and forth on arguments and, with reasoning, and it would just come to a stalemate. Um, you know, it was fun, um, but it, it would just kind of come to a stalemate, um, and. I remember one time there was, I, I just, you know, was kind of getting frustrated, you know, just asked the guy, you know, well, you can test God's existence, um, you know, here and now. Have, have you been praying? You know, like what have you have you talked to God and stuff like that? And um, he, he he kind of brushed that off and, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, why, you know, why would I want to talk to him? And um Anyway, I guess I, I, I came away from those kinds of encounters, um, getting the feeling or the sense um, from atheists that while they, you know, hold strongly to empiricism, um, they're not willing to make attempts at prayer and, and, mm. and see, mm -hmm. um, you know, could there be a God? Could there be a potential spiritual life and such? And I, I feel that's a little inconsistent because i you know i i'm cons consistently revising my own you know view of the universe based on you know the natural from what i can see so um 
Do you, do you see that inconsistency or not? I guess. No, that's a good question. And let me just preface that by saying it, the thought struck me. What if God did answer my prayer and drove the bear away? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> just that, that, you know, this happened like 30 years ago, and it just this struck me for the first time, you know. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a miracle. It was just some shuffling off with a bear ass in the darkness. Anyway, and normally I like a bear ass in the darkness. but um, So as far as the empiricism goes, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there have been a number of studies that have done regarding the efficacy of prayer with regards to a third party. I fully and completely believe in the healing power of prayer regarding one's own mental state. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think people who pray are getting more wisdom and, and knowledge and peace of mind if we want to look at it as a form of self-examination and a form of meditation and a form of rumination upon right. important issues in life. I mean, even right. look at the simple prayer that uh, children say at night, the prayer that I was taught to say at night, where you thank God for what you have and you ask God to bless the people that you love and and maybe even your enemies if you're feeling particularly Christian and charitable. Well, how about a daily reminder of how much you have to be grateful for? What does that do to people's state of mind? Well, atheists don't have that in general. Right. And what about a, a daily reminder of how much you love people and how much you care? about people to reaffirm your social bonds and your familial bonds and your friendship bonds. Um, How about cultivating an attitude of gratitude? Does that do things for one's mental well-being? Yes. I mean, how how could it not? I mean, it would make perfect sense. I also, and I've written this book called Against the Gods, where I I talk about the concept of, of divinity as the unconscious. I won't sort of go into the whole argument here. But the unconscious is extraordinarily powerful. So even if there was no deity, asking questions of yourself and being receptive to the answers would be extraordinarily helpful, I think, in terms of personal integration and and integrity and having respect for the aspects of your mind, not directly accessible to your conscious mind, but which your conscious mind is built on. And so I do believe that people who pray are better off than people who don't self-examine in the secular sense, if that makes sense. That is, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, it's also a time for kind of truth-telling in a way, or like a... Be deep. Be deep about something. Right. Be deep about something. I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is what drives me nuts with the secularists, right? Particularly the lefties. It's this relentless shallowness. It's this relentless shallowness. And it may be because I just had a whole conversation about, I reread and rewatched um, King Lear. What an incredibly deep play. And what have secularists produced that has that kind of depth? You know, the funny thing is that I am an atheist, but culturally, Christians have got it made. Culturally, Christians have got it down pat. I mean, and 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 more so. I mean, almost all of my favorite writers are religious, with the exception of uh, Ayn Rand. And the power of that, the, the depth of that, 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 that prayer is thinking deeply about moral issues. It's think, 
thinking deeply about justice. It's thinking deeply about fairness, about revenge, about humility, about all of the big virtues that we all need to kneel before. And this, to me, is, is the power of feeling small in the face of virtue is one of the essences of philosophy. I feel very small relative to ideas. I feel very small relative to virtues. I feel very small relative to truth, because truth is this giant edifice that everyone carves and everyone's a part of, and I'm doing my little bit with my little chisel and this and that and the other, and I'm adding, hopefully, uh, a couple of happy faces to the giant parade of truth that we as a species are both carving and destroying on regular, repetitive, tied-in, tied-out patterns. But I feel tiny, tiny relative to the potentialities of, of truth and virtue out there, the humility mm-hmm. that is the essence of Christianity, the abandonment of one's own personal ego for the sake of larger principles, and the smallness one feels in the face of truth, virtue, perfect divinity, omnipotence, omniscience, and so on, is very powerful to me. And there's nothing that I know of that is the spiritual or psychological equivalent in the secular or atheist community. Does that, I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, whether this is just a word salad to you, but does that make any sense? Right, right. That makes um, a lot of sense. And um, from what I've been exposed to, you're the only one from the atheist point who has a perspective for, for seeing that need within humanity in general. Um, we need something bigger than ourselves. We, we, we desperately need something bigger than themselves. Otherwise, we fall prey to the temptation of Satan, which is the goal to try and create a heaven on earth, which always turns into hell itself. Right, right. Um, I, have a, I have a prayer story that um, I guess I, I'd like to challenge you on, um, if you're willing to hear that. Uh, uh, sure. Um, and, I, and I say this just because, um, I mean, me for myself, I... It, prayer is a time for uh, self-reflection and for trying to seek out God's will. Um, and then, like you said, it, um, you know, I, I believe in its healing power. Um, and then, but there's been times in my life where I, I am, I, I believe God has um, spoken to me or, or given me a vision. And I'm curious um, what you would uh, make of that. Sure. Let's, uh, let's hear one. So um, most recently, um, there's been three three points um, where it's happened, and most recently was last year, when um, at that time I I and my fiance went to early morning uh, prayer service at like six a.m. in the morning. Oof. And <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'll do a night service, but those early morning ones is like I do not have a lot of the spirit in me at that time of the day. But well, yeah, I mean I, I was the same way. I mean I like, I mean she's she's in seminary. Um, my fiance now wife um, it was in seminary, and you know she's very keen on going to those and um. So I was half asleep, but, you know, also praying about the future. Um, you know, God, God, give me wisdom I'm about to get married and all that. Um, and not being half asleep, not being terribly that um, pious, I suppose. I even despite that, like all of a sudden I had this vision uh, pretty um, with uh, strong senses of a 10 year old girl with, um, you know, long haired, big, big big cheeks and I had a suddenly, you know, sense of love with, within me. And, um, I had the feeling, oh, that was going to be our future child. And then, um, 
but then I, you know, I was like, you know, is, is this my thought? You know, like, you know, like, how, how do you discern what is, you know, from God or from you? Um, so I, I hid that. Uh, I, well, I, I hid it in my mind for a while, but then I wrote down the the image I had on a in a drawing, and then showed that to my fiance a couple couple days later, and she she was um, interested and 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 accepted as you know, well, maybe God um, did say something. And um, long long story short, um, a couple months later we got married, and and uh, a couple months later we got pregnant, and it did come out to be a little bit, little baby girl. And, um, um, so I, I, I guess just, so there was some kind of validation there and the question begs, you know, was that my mind, you know, just wishfully imagining for the future or was that, you know, um, a, you know, a sign of encouragement from God. And, um, I don't mean to keep on talking, but I am curious about what your, um, take on that, something like that might be. Well, the idea that you would have a vision, uh, this was the woman that you wanted to marry, and the idea that you would have a vision of you having a child together is not outside the bounds of probability, right? Right. And the idea that, I mean, it, it would seem to me quite likely in many ways that when your daughter grows up, she may actually look like the picture that you made. Right, because you know your wife's features, you know your features, you know that your daughter's going to be some combination of those and, you know, a couple of other things mixed in. <laughs> so the idea that you would have... Now, if, you know, if you're white and you, you have an Asian baby and that was your... And that's what you had, okay, that would be, that would be a little <laughs> bit more like, okay, that's a little out of bounds as far as probability goes. Well, but, my, my wife is Korean. Oh, is she? Okay. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you had a, an Inuit baby. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? So, <laughs> so if, if you had that out of bounds things, then that would be more remarkable. The fact that you dreamt of a child and had a child is not, to me... And, and even if your child ends up you know, looking like what you anticipate, that is, um, I think, within the bounds of probability, which, you know, is, is has no particular meaning with regards to how much you love your daughter or anything like that. Um, and I just wanted to mention as well, like I'd said, all those things about mental health. Um, there are studies, and I'll talk about other studies in a second, but there are studies that have been done that, uh, you know, people who pray to, now you can't just pray to like Baal or, you know, Asmodeus or, or something. Like you have to pray to a loving and benevolent and protective God. And if you do that, then you're less likely to experience like anxiety-related disorders, like you know, worry, fear, self-consciousness, social anxiety, OCD. Um, so even people who pray but don't really expect to receive a lot of comfort or protection from God, right? There are certain religions where you pray, but you know, God may listen, but He's not going to act or whatever. But if you pray to a loving and protective God, you do. Um, better uh, in in terms of mental health in in certain areas, and this is true. Like regular meditation, spiritual practices, and so on, it actually thickens parts of the brain's cortex. Could be the reason why they tend to guard against depression, especially those at risk for the disease. So um, there there are positive uh, benefits psychologically to prayer. The studies where they've sort of got somebody who's sick in a hospital, they've asked you know, half the church to pray for one person, half the church to not pray for that person, it doesn't have any effect on on the outcome, right? So prayer with regards to another person has not been validated as shifting the needle of probability uh, at all, 
as far as I know it. And it's been a while since I've looked into that. So if people have other studies, you know, please uh, let me know. So a prayer as a form of self-knowledge, prayer as a form of self-reflection, prayer as a form of committing yourself to virtue uh, and thinking about big and important issues in life. And I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know if this if this is the case, probably less for you because because you're religious, but man, oh man. I mean, the, the number of people, like I, I talk to them, particularly on the secular side, and, and I sort of ask them, okay, well, what is justice to you? What is, what is truth? What is virtue? Now, if I'm talking to a Christian, I'm going to get me some answers. I may not agree with all of those answers. Hell, I may not agree with any of them, but there's thought behind it. They've ruminated, they've dwelt on, they've thought deeply about these issues, for the most part. And that is philosophical <laughs> compared to the somewhat materialistically shallow mental life of a lot of, uh, of atheists. Like I'm reading a book by a prominent atheist on ethics, and it's all just about consequentialism and the greatest good for the greatest number and basically Spock pseudo-philosophy and stuff. And it's not a lot of depth, not a lot of a, what does it mean to be good and what are the principles by which we can ensure goodness and what is the long-term uh, practice of goodness and, and how does suffering fit into it and can suffering be good and like all of the stuff which Christians have wrestled with for thousands of years and come up with some very startling, original and powerful answers. I, I try to go to the atheist philosophy side again, exception of Ayn Rand, but the atheist philosophy side, it's a... Uh, it's it's pretty thin gruel to live on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, well, and 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 I guess, like I said before, um, when I've had conversations with atheists about um, the existence of God and whatnot, um, I guess, like I just encourage them to try praying and and. Um, using that as a way, you know, to uh, collect evidence for themselves. You know, they don't, they don't, you don't have to go through inst institutionalized Christianity, which, you know, a lot of people have object objections with that. Um, you know, you can try to access God on their own. And um, um, I'm, I'm very curious about um, other people's um, thoughts on that. Well, I, I certainly think that... Um time for self-reflection, time for an examination of depth uh, and and thought and virtue and uh, all of this. It is amazing to me just how many people skate through life on the very surface of things, becoming restless, becoming discontented, becoming frustrated, becoming alienated, becoming sort of empty vessels of nerve stimulation in the hopes of warding off the emptiness of a life unquestioned. It's an old statement from Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. It's barely even a life. I mean, we are like then very intelligent lizards in search of sun and shade and food and sex, so it's not very yeah. uh, elevated. And it is to me tragic just how many people go through life without thinking deeply about things. I mean, it's become my occupation as a sort of public uh, philosopher, but it's because I had that for decades before that I was able to step relatively easily into this role and have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I would really invite people, whether you want to call it prayer or not, to think deeply about life, to not skate through your days. There's an old saying, there's an old conversation. 
I think it was in Ireland, when the Christian priests first came to Ireland, they spoke with the chieftains of the local tribes, and they Christian priests talked about the soul, life after death, heaven, hell, virtue, abstractions, goodness, the Ten Commandments, Jesus, sacrifice, loving your enemies, all, all of these things. And one of the chieftains turned to one of the priests and he said, never thought of this stuff, really. Now that you mention it, now that you talk about it, I can feel my mind expanding to it, but I never really thought about this stuff. I mean, I guess we just kind of thought that, like we have a hut here and there's a window on one side and there's a window on another side so that the breeze will blow away the smoke from our fire. And occasionally, like a bird will fly in one window, fly through the hut, and fly out the other window. And that's kind of what we thought of love. We didn't th- well, where does the bird come from? Where does the bird go to? We never thought of it. There's a bird in the house. It's gone. <laughs> and that's was how we looked at life, like a bird flying through a house. Yeah. And, and so many people are kind of devolved back to that. Whoosh, flash, something new on Netflix, new video game, new movie. Ooh, let me get on Twitter. Let me fragment my brain into a tiny pixelated stained glass non-entity of distraction can't even take a crap without a tablet hey we've all been there come on (laughs) the cia has got some ugly footage in the world i think but you know there there has to be something before and after the window now whether that means you know if you want to think before and after life and so on but there is something before and after your life before your life there was the culture that was erected around you that gave you life and after you die will be the effects that your life and your work has had on the world, on the minds and hearts and cultures around you. There is a before and after. If you want to call it immortality, that's one approach. As an atheist, I'm going to focus on immortality in my effect on the world. But both Mm -hmm. of these things require that we think about something more than the immediate, that we become human. To be Mm -hmm. human is to think in eternalities, in infinities. That is what it is to be human, because as far as we know, we're the only species that can grasp such concepts. And we think in absolutes, we think in universalities, we think in infinities. We extrapolate forever. What is physics? Physics describes what happens on the other side of the universe as much as it happens in front of our nose. 15 billion light years across. Physics describes what happened a hundred thousand, a million, a hundred million, a billion years ago or more, and what will happen in the future. Philosophy describes eternal, immutable truths that cannot be overturned. Cannot be overturned. You can only disarm. You can only you know you can only disarm the fundamental truths of philosophy by attempting to use a sword to take away a sword and say there's no such thing as a sword. You can't do it. And we have to understand that these eternalities, these infinities, these extrapolations, these universalizations, that is what it is to be human. And the degree to which our life ignores or bypasses those and is in the snuffle-nosed, trough-eating and rutting of the everyday That's the degree to which 
we aren't human. We are highly complex nerve bundles of self-gratification in the moment. And what I have grown to appreciate about religion over the years, Christianity over the years, is it pulls us up from the trough, as philosophy is supposed to do, to pull us up from the trough of satiating the body, the everyday, the momentary, the five more minutes of peace, the appeasement, yeah? I'm looking at you, the Netherlands. (laughs) It pulls us up to the eternalities that is the essence of what it is to be a human being. And philosophy, at least as I approach it and practice it, proselytize it, is still trying to catch up to that. Maybe it'll pass it one day, working on it. But uh, I respect a worthy and more successful competitor. Well, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. But uh, great set of calls tonight, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And congratulations on being a dad. Oh, thank you. I I love it very much. Good. Take care. (laughs) You too. Uh, Thanks, everyone, so much for calling in to another wonderful evening conversation about philosophy and deep ideas. Hugely and greatly appreciated. Please, please, please go by freedomainradio.com slash donate, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us help the world. Thank you uh, so much for your support in that area. Uh, Like, subscribe, and share everything of ours that you value and get your hands on. Please uh, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux, and don't forget to use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful night.